a girl that I once knew Who often had a friend or two She gave them time, love, wit, and rhyme sublime They would come from far away And often gather there all day To show their love and see which one would stay But to her it mattered not For loyalty was not her lot Her answer was for not for them to know She goes on her merry way Though she's only queen for a day Boy and girl often take this world So you'd better mind what you say My advice to you, my friend Is try to find what it's about And then you take into account your role I take some sugar in your mouth that may be sweet to you But bitter in your stomach later on What is good for you may not be good for me So different stroke for different folk could be a real good rule There she goes on her merry way Though she's only queen for a day Boy and girl often take this world So you better mind what you say Hello everybody and welcome to Ornate Stairwells, a movie podcast I'm Autumn, this is Nia Hi, I'm Eve. Uh, it's going to be just a quick 80-minute episode, I think. Yeah. We're going in, out, done. Yeah. We definitely never talk longer about a movie than the length of the movie, and we definitely didn't watch an uh, 84-minute movie together, and then also a three-hour movie together. Can, can you just scroll over to the part of the spreadsheet where it says all the movies we've watched? Can you give me a head count there? Um... Nine? Nine movies. <laughs> Which is not... We've watched more. Yes. But one, these are all kind of different movies. Mm-hmm. So we can't group them together like we sometimes do where we're just going to like talk about The Matrix for a while. Yeah. Also, we watched... Like, two of these are ones that we both watched. Yes. Which also means that there's going to be probably more discussion than just like... Oh, yeah. I watched blah, blah, blah. It was good. Yeah. <laughs> what was that voice? <laughs> I don't know. Um, so yeah, there are th- there are three movies yeah. today that we both watched. If you if you haven't read the episode title, our main feature is she's got to have it. Spike Lee's debut movie, but um, we also we watched together Kagemusha, and we watched separately, but we both watched Night of the Hunter. Yeah, we started up Kagemusha, and I yeah. was like, by the way, earlier today I watched Night of the Hunter, and you, you paused it, and you were like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> I was, And then you decided that you had to watch Night of the Hunter, and I think you were, like, honestly considering finishing Kagemusha and starting Night of the Hunter. I got real... If, if Kagemusha was two and a half hours instead of three hours, I'd have done it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also... I arranged things in the order that I thought it would be best to talk about it, um, but if you have any objections for your stuff, feel free to watch them now. Otherwise, you can launch into Frank Herbert's Dune. Yeah. Um, I don't think I'm going to have a ton to say about Frank Herbert's Dune. Um, I I don't think I actually said this on the podcast. So, I think on the last podcast, I talked about how I watched the Dune, the 1980 uh, 
Four. Four. Yeah. Before watching Noon with Emily. And then I think I maybe mentioned that while we were watching it, Emily was like, oh, I want to go back and watch that one that's like the Dune that I remember from my childhood. So we watched Dune 1984. I'm not going to talk about that again. Mm -hmm. But we did watch it together. We also watched Encanto again because we watched it with I'm not going to talk about that again. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh. oh. Yeah. You all get to hear my beep in there. Yeah. Anyway. Um... Oh, yeah. So then, yeah, we were watching 1984 Dune, and Emily was like, wait, this isn't the Dune that I remember from when I was a kid. And I was like, what other Dune movies are there? So she was like, well, this would have been like around 2000. So she typed in Dune 2000, what you get is a video game. And she was like, was it like a, not a movie, but a miniseries or something? So she typed in Dune 2000 miniseries, and it popped right up. It was a sci-fi miniseries. Or or Dune 1000, as we call it. (laughs) No, but that's the video game. Dune (laughs) 1000. I thought of that earlier today, yeah. forgot it until just now. If you saw me like puzzling in my brain, I was like, what's the stupid name I came up with? Dune Thousand. That's the video game. Oh, okay. Yeah. This is the Dooney series. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Stupid. <laughs> um, I have a bunch of question marks here. So. For the stairwell quality. For the stairwell. Um, also, just real quick. Um, usually we have cocktails with movies. Yeah. Um, the one that Emily made today was a little stronger than usual, so if I'm a little giggly, that's all. <laughs> yeah. Um, I felt it, and I, uh, I'm, I'm not a lightweight like you, so. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Dune um, Thousand. Dooney series. Yeah, the Dooney series. So this was, so I guess it's one of the, the top three like best performing, I don't know exactly how they do this metric. Um, like one of the top three best performing sci-fi series ever. Um, really, you really got to push that door close because it just it just hangs right open. Um, I can kind of see why. Like, so they got. Um, I, I was just pulling it up on here to um, double check the name for uh, the cinematographer. So it's by uh, Vitoro. Storaro, who did like Apocalypse Now and The Last Emperor, um, not like did cinematography on them. Yes, to be clear, <laughs> yes, cinematography. Um, not like necessarily like my favorite cinematographer, but like a good cinematographer. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are moments where like knowing that I could kind of see it, but it's also just extremely a a TV show, and so yeah. like it's just a lot of TV show cinematography, and it also means that like most of it is like. I'm pretty sure that this, like, set of caves or whatever that, like, the Fremen are in is just, like, you know, holdover set from, like, a Star Trek thing or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's, like, a lot of those vibes where it's just, like, this is all clearly... Like, a bunch of the sets just feel like they're reused sets from other sci-fi shows or possibly even, like, you could do, like, Xena in some of those caves because it's... Right, it's yeah. Desert caves. Yeah. Um, it's just, like, the most obvious map backgrounds for, like, any shot where they're on the planet because they're not going to be able to do a good planet background, so they just do, like, a 3D animation, probably blue screen or green screen. Right. Um, so, like, it was probably my least favorite Dune that I watched, but also I feel like if you were a fan of the 
the book, you might enjoy it because Makes sense. it's a mini series. So there's just a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like the it does happen in the part two because it's a three part mini series. Um, is like the end of part one of the the noon, mm-hmm. the new dune, uh, which happens about like two thirds of the way into. 1984 because they definitely like get to the second half of that story and then they're just like uh we gotta wrap this up (laughs) um so that was the part that i found kind of interesting was seeing like oh here's like stuff that kind of gets adapted in the the 1984 movie but like Mm -hmm. doesn't really like hasn't been adapted yet but also i feel like once noon two comes out it's gonna be like well uh, there's not much reason to watch the, the Dune series. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was still it was still fun. And uh, the biggest thing is that like the the guy playing Paul is just like the most just like sci-fi hot dude. Mm-hmm. You know, like he's not like a really hot actor or anything, but he's just like a sci-fi miniseries level of hotness. Is that sci-fi the channel or sci-fi yeah, the Yeah, sci-fi con- the channel. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the guy you mean now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where, like, could almost, is like, um, suddenly it's like slipping through my fingers. The James in Twin Peaks. Oh, I don't know that actor. Very, name, it's yeah. not the same actor, but it's like similar vibe. Okay, yeah. It's the kind of vibe where, so Paul for me works when he's kind of a, a dorky dweeb, mm. which is why uh, Kyle, McLaughlin. Kyle McLaughlin is the best because he's the one where like the charm works yeah. of this kind of dweeby guy. Yeah. Um, whereas the James vibes off of this Paul is just like, you think you're cool and you're a dweeb guy. And it, mm-hmm. it's making me not like you. Mm-hmm. I I don't like you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, we were also doing a like magic puzzle mm-hmm. during it. So I don't I don't remember distinctive stairs case. Uh, it was the kind of production where I doubt they would have had much where you would like actually get people going upstairs to another floor. Right. Um, maybe there were some stairs, but whatever. If you are really into Dune, maybe seek this out if you haven't seen it. But otherwise, I would not recommend mm-hmm. it as a thing for people to like search. Get out. into Dune. Yeah. Also, the only version I could find um, was French for the like title cards. <laughs> um, but then the subtitles were some Eastern European language. Huh. So we just turned subtitles off at that point. <laughs> um, anyway. For some reason, a lot of people aren't seeking out the 2000 miniseries Dune from sci-fi. <laughs> I watched um, the 1926 F.W. Murnau film, um, Murnau? Um, Murnau. Murnau, yeah. I, I, I thought it was Murnau. When I was younger, for some reason, I thought he was French, and so I said Murnau. Anyway, yeah. neither here nor there. Uh, the 1926 F.W. Murnau film uh, Faust. Um, this is four years after um, he directs Nosferatu. Um, in some ways, I think this is a much better film than Nosferatu. In some ways, I think it is a much lesser film than Nosferatu. Um, but it's good. Um, 
I'm not really as I don't really like silent movies generally. That feels like an, a silly thing to say. Yeah. You know, as as a person who's into film, it feels like you know, but like how much Chaplin and none, Buster Keaton have you none, seen? None. We got to watch like some I there's some Chaplin I like, but Buster Keaton's like more near and dear to my heart. I just think he's funnier. Mm. Um, I think Chaplin can like do some like some of the mo- some of Chaplin's movies hit more, but overall, I like Buster Keaton. But because that's just that works. Every, so well. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, every silent film I've seen has been a drama, and. Almost every silent film I've seen has been um, a like German expressionist or ripping off German expressionism. I'm I'm very fond of Murnau's Nosferatu. I'm very fond of Vampire. I'm very fond of the uh, original Phantom of the Opera movie with I believe Lon Chaney Senior. Um, if if I'm not mistaken, um, and but but generally I don't really go for silent movies i usually i usually it is like an attention span thing where i have trouble staying engaged for the entirety of a silent film um and i'll just cop to that you know and i i feel silly saying it but it's like the truth so whatever who cares anyway um but yeah i liked this movie starts really strong and ends really strong and really loses me in the middle so um they're just like um, you know, 1926 is the height of German Expressionism. You know, the movie opens on this gorgeous shot. Uh, basically, there's an angel and, and Satan, and they're, like, talking. And they're played by the two actors who are going to, throughout the movie, play Faust as the angel and, and Mephisto is, is Satan. You know, um... And they reuse these actors and recostume these actors in ways that are kind of fun because they're representative of these greater ideas of good and evil. Um, and the, the, the opening shots are so beautiful because you have the two actors in these beautiful costumes and then they are standing against sets that act as massive wings for them. Yeah. In a really cool way. And, and early on, you get a shot of, like... Um, there are just some really impressive special effects. Early on, you get this shot of Mephisto, like... Um, like, there's this be- idyllic little German town, you know, 15th century or whatever. And and then uh, Mephisto fades in, towering over, the, over this little German town. Like... Bigger than Godzilla has ever been in a film. You know, huge, ginormous Mephisto, like, towering over this town and, like, opening up his cape and, like, releasing a plague. It's really cool. Um, And then at some point, the movie diverts to Faust, like, falls for this girl and, like, frolics through a little German meadow with her. And I'm like, what is going on? And then Mephisto falls for her grandma um, or her grandma falls from it. It's a whole thing. Yeah. Middle of this movie really loses me. Gets good again at the end. Um, um, yeah, I I had a good time. Nora liked it considerably more than I did. I yeah. had a good time. Nora loved this movie. Um, um, 
First, mm-hmm. you go. Sorry. I was just going to say a couple. I haven't seen Fast. Uh-huh. Um, but I was going to say a couple other silent films just to see if you've seen them. Mm-hmm. One is Sunrise. Don't like it. Okay. So you have seen that one. I, I, I to if cut you it. Don't, if you don't like Sunrise, I mean, you can say why you don't like it, but I feel like generally just drama is not going to do it for you. Maybe like if you haven't seen Battleship Potemkin or something like that. I want to see Potemkin and Strike. Yeah. And the slack, I will cut, I will cut some slack for Sunrise. I watched it in a classroom on a bad projector. Not, not just a classroom, but a like, uh, uh, a classroom with stadium seating that could seat a thousand people, you know, in, in, um, I was about to say the class. I was about to say it's in Budig Hall, as if anybody would know what Budig Hall was. <laughs> oh yeah, Budig Hall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Burned down in the '60s. They re- whatever. Who cares? Um. <laughs> the other, the other like drama is Passion of Joan of Arc, which is the one that I, I want to see that. Where again, they made this like super elaborate set, and he barely uses it. <laughs> I want. I would like to see. I would like to see Passion of Joan of Arc. I would like to see Hexen. Hexen. Yeah. Um, I was scrolling through Criterion Channel and Nora's like, what's that? And I was like, oh, that's Hexen and blah, blah, blah. Uh, people love that movie. I'd like to see that. Um, yeah. Man but- with a movie camera. I haven't seen it. That's a really good one. Um, the biggest thing that I, I'm thinking here is so one, I think like just we could watch some like comedy because mm-hmm. some of the comedy stuff just works because like comedy still play. Like yeah. doing nonverbal comedy is what you have to do because the jokes aren't going to land if you're just doing title cards. Yeah. So jokes are like generally. Yeah. Or rely on like t- title cards doing the jokes. Um, I think that's just part of it is that like sometimes drama is like hard to get in that headspace. Yeah. When you're just not at all even used to like the title card thing, which was like a lot of comedy, like barely ever uses title cards. Mm-hmm. Like Buster Keaton was often trying to like limit the number of title cards, like the number of words that he had to do in a movie as much as possible. Yeah. Um, and that stuff just like, especially as I'm, I think for me watching a lot of Buster Keaton helped me get more into other silent film because it just like acclimated me more to that style. But the other thing is hopefully when pandemic is less awful, mm-hmm. there'll be another silent film at the music box where they have the organist come and play and just seeing like being in a theater and seeing it projected and not having like, here's some soundtrack that's just put over it. Cause some of those soundtracks are really shitty too. Mm-hmm. The music box will usually, as best they can, find original notes, too, for, like, mm. what people playing should be doing. Oh, cute. And the organist will, like, just do it. Yeah. And it's, like, playing along to the, you know, the yeah. notes. That's cute. Um, And just having someone do live music and, like, you just see them in the corner doing it while you're watching something projected... Um, like, it, it's just so... It's so different and so much yeah. more, like... Oh, this is how it was meant to be viewed, and it it actually is like important, I think, for a yeah. lot of silent films. Um, every time that I've seen a silent film with, even if it's just like a organist at some small theater or whatever, it's always been so much better than any time I've ever watched one on DVD. Yeah, I um in this class I took it was like a film one hundred one or one hundred two. I I had a math degree and I was just taking my last two years. I would just take a film class each semester just because I could. Um, and so at some point we hit like, you know, oh, let's show these kids a silent movie. We haven't done that yet. Um, and my, my teacher was apparently debating between Modern Times and Sunrise. 
um, and decided to do Sunrise, and I just hated that movie. But, you know, bad, a bad viewing experience, to be yeah. sure. Could be. But I definitely, I definitely, in hindsight, wish we had seen Modern Times, you know? Yeah. Although that's one of his sadder movies. Uh-huh. Chaplin's sadder movies. Oh, is it really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, there was another thing I was going to say about that, but I forgot. Anyway. Is, is it Modern Times or City Lights that in... Uh, Angels of the Universe, he's like, if it was a funnier Chaplin film. Oh, I don't remember. <laughs> you're, you're right. You're right. Oh, that was another thing um, I was going to mention was the, the the huge shot of, like, this angel played by the actor who plays Faust with the huge, like, wings that are the set. And there's, like, a spotlight. Like, there's a there's a light here to actually illuminate Faust's face, but there is a spotlight shining right behind Faust's head so that it almost, like, uh, like overexposes the camera. It's, like, this beautiful halo. I can't believe they pulled this off, certainly in 1926. Um, I saw that, and I was like, oh, Vim Vendors saw this as a kid, and it blew his fucking mind. <laughs> I was like, this is Wings of Desire. All of that movie comes out of this shot. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, oh, I was going to mention another one. Um, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, don't care for it. Metropolis, don't care for it. Metropolis, I and like I some like of the special Fritz, effects. I like Fritz Lang a lot. Yeah, I like some of the special effects. Um, I think Metropolis is a, a like... If you're looking at the story as like a terrible, uh, evil movie, it's really interesting because I was listen. I've been catching up on a couple episodes of um repertory screenings, and somewhere in there, Jackson is like, "Hey, this movie's kind of fash." <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I was really surprised to hear that because I always think of M as a like very like not super anti-fash movie but i think of m as having like a s- subtext of anti-fascism yeah. or or at least not anti-fascism but like oh i don't know about all this look where this is going you know so i'm what's, surprised to hear metropolis what's frustrating is. about metropolis is that i i don't think it is intentionally my my read on it is that it's not necessarily intentionally being like this is gonna be fash but it is like doing this like kind of mealy mouth thing mm. that just doesn't work and that ends up making it kind of like just unpleasant yeah in terms of like plot and what it's saying mm. but in terms of special effects i love when i see that robot lady yeah um, i think when i watched metropolis i was sitting at home and i was kind of bored and so i was like you know i'm gonna like kind of skip around see all the big special effects shots and then call it a day yeah um, I know people who complain about the the anime version of the Tessica Metropolis as being kind of like empty, mm-hmm. um, and all those people are like, "And the original Metropolis is great." And no, they're they're both kind of empty movies. And <laughs> I feel like the anime one is just like more embracing the emptiness of the movie. <laughs> anyway, um, I was surprised by this. I gave the stairs in Faust a C. I feel like. I feel like if any time in cinema is going to be just like resplendent with, with beautiful ornate stairwells, it would be German expressionism. But there is um, a really cool set of steps leading up to Faust's home 
that I don't I don't think it's used very well. Yeah. And there is um a really 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 cool stairway in a house somewhere that nobody ever walks on. Yeah. And I'm like, what the hell? Um, I talked about that a little bit on VoIP Life. If you're giving $10 to the Abnormal Mapping Patreon, you can hear me complain about that stairwell there. Um, so, uh, <laughs> you can also hear more of Nora's thoughts, I think, because um, Nora Nora was very fond of that movie. Nora also said the very funny thing of, um, you know, Nora said, um, Faust is great. Night of the Hunter, I don't know about that, which I, Jackson and I got a laugh out of because it's they're both just German expressionism. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's everything on Faust for me. Um, Shall I move on to Technolust? Uh, okay, can I introduce Technolust just a little yeah. bit? Nora and I spent an, even, spent an hour, not even an hour, um, browsing what's leaving the Criterion channel at the end of the month. Yeah. And Nora sees the name Technolust and this thumbnail of of Tilda Swinton in a cool red dress. It's like, ooh, what's that? And we yeah. we click it, we read the summary, and it's some movie where T- Tilda Swinton is an android uh, who can only survive by drinking cum. And Nora was like, put it on the list. <laughs> yeah. And I mentioned it to you, and then you ended up watching it before either of us have. Yeah, um, because I'm just a, so when you told me about it, I was like, that seems like a, a wild, uh, like sci-fi erotic thriller where it's just some director making a movie about his kink. (laughs) Um, he just like wants some android lady to drink his cum. (laughs) Um, and those movies can be a lot. But I have like a weird affection for them. There's uh-huh. there's something about just like a a horny director dude who's just like gross and sleazy, just making a movie that's fully what what he is. <laughs> <laughs> there's just a strange like perverse joy to me mm. in in watching some of these things. Yeah. Um. You know, Crimes of Passion kind of felt like this, mm-hmm. and there are other uh, erotic thrillers that are even more extremely this. Blue Velvet, um, in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this movie was not at all what I expected. Mm-hmm. It is the least horny movie that has probably ever been made about drinking cum. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, one, it is uh, directed by Lynn Hirschman Leeson, mm-hmm. who, uh, one, is, is not a sleazeball guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, is a woman who at the time was teaching film, mm-hmm. like filmmaking at, um, I forget what, what school she was at. Um, and is like considered a, a like feminist director icon. Mm-hmm. Um, and also this movie is just the most early aughts. Mm-hmm. thing i have ever seen mm-hmm. like if you told me that this movie was made like 10 years ago as a joke about the early aughts i would believe you <laughs> <laughs> because everything it there there are mo- like there are outfits and just like hair that are just like no one would do this unless it's a joke about the early aughts <laughs> why is this here why does this movie exist um the I'm like trying to see if I can find it. Like here's one where I feel like you can kind of see. Oh, it's not even gonna like give me the good. Um, but like they also just decide. So they they just like 
you so it's shot on a, a Sony digital camera in mm-hmm. 2002. Oof. Um, and if you look at that specific camera and you click like, you know, you go to a website where it's like, here's all the technical specs and you click on it and see what other stuff is shot on it. Um, let me just like give you some other one. I don't have this up right now. This is just my memory looking at it. Um, house, you know, the MD? TV show. MD? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Hannibal. You know, the TV show? <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, yeah, it's mostly TV shows. Man, I like Hannibal the TV show a lot. And sometimes I think it looks very nice. Yeah. But sometimes it looks like really washed out in the way that TV shows look in a way that is hard for me to describe. Um that now that you say that, I'm like, I don't want to watch a movie that looks like that. I'm fine watching a TV show that looks like that, but I don't yeah. want to watch a movie like um, that. It feels extremely movie. Like, the acting feels extremely movie. Uh-huh. Um, or extremely TV. Um, yeah. It, here, let me let me just click on this so we can, we can look at some of these live. Um, anyway, and... Doctor Who yeah, 2005. Doctor Who 2005. Ugh. Um, Dexter. Oh, that's a bad the Big Bang TV Theory. show. Um, the Big the Bang Office. Theory is like immaterial to me because that's not a drama, you know. Yeah. Um, Rules of Engagement. Oh, this is Californication. California. This is such a Californication looking movie. <laughs> um. But yeah, so it was kind of interesting, but also. So basically the plot of it is uh Tilda Swinton is playing four characters. Um she's playing Rosetta Stone, who's just the actual name of this woman. Uh-huh. Um last name Stone and her parents were real cheeky, I guess. <laughs> uh with the naming their kids. Um and she has made like robot clones of herself. There's stuff where they like kind of get into how it works, but it's all just like they're not really interested in explaining the sci-fi of it, which I think is fine. Um, it's not what this movie is. Um, but, uh, so it uses some of her DNA, but then there's like also AI stuff involved and whatever. Um, and the name of them, they're, uh, Hikari, Umi, and Fu, or sorry, Rumi, (laughs) Marine, (laughs) and Olive. And they're red, blue, and green. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and the, the aesthetics of this are very totally spies as well. Um, it's like super, it's very cartoony. Uh-huh. Um, there are big, like bubbly thing. It is, so this is being made like shortly before, uh, Vespertine came out, but it's like far more like post and homogenic. It's like, she's clearly a Bjork fan given the fact that Iceland comes up in the movie. And I was like, okay, I think she's just a Bjork fan. And this is just like cribbing kind of at that time, starting to get slightly dated Bjork aesthetics. Uh huh. And then Bjork in particular is mentioned till oh. Swinton's character, Rosetta stone goes to get a haircut and says, can you make me look like Bjork? And then the joke is she comes out and looks exactly the same. <laughs> um, and anyway, it's like one, all the sex scenes are like, uh, Ruby's the one who's going out and and will like have sex with men, and it always involves a condom because then she takes it home and makes tea for it and gives it to her sisters. Um, and there's this like kind of gay thing that's happening between Marine and Olive, 
where it's like even commented on that like because they have each other they don't like feel a need to seek out other things but ruby doesn't like have a relationship in that same way and so she's like seeking out connection by sleeping with these men or whatever Mm -hmm. um anyway so there's like a lot of stuff where they're like trying to develop these characters but also they're kind of like stand-ins for like different aspects of like a woman's desire or something um and a lot of it just ended up like people will will talk all about you can find all sorts of essays and stuff like analyzing this from a from feminist point of view but it felt just like very cis white lady feminism to me mm-hmm. um where it was like we're interrogating like you know how s- the internet is changing like sex and but it's all from this like very um mostly straight cis white lady perspective right um that like <clears throat> i just didn't find that interesting yeah it doesn't um, sound interesting and I saw some people online who were talking about it as like a, a trans allegory thing. And I did not. So the big thing is the end of it is Ruby finally falls in love with a guy who I do not understand what she sees in him at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> at all. Uh, he's like the most weird, awkward dude in the entire movie. Um, anyway, I'll, the early aughts were dire. We thought that like this kind of weird quirkiness was attractive somehow. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, and it ends with like, ah, uh, the, the happy ending, this like fulfillment is that like, instead of having sex with all these guys, she's now like found, uh, one guy to continue one guy sex. to have sex with that. She like loves. And it ends with, Oh, finally, because like Rosetta stone was making it so they couldn't reproduce. Um, cause it was like this experiment with these things that she was doing, but she like, that's no longer applicable or like, instead of doing it, their like computer way. They can basically, she gets pregnant. The end is Ruby gets pregnant uh-huh. and this is supposed to be a feminist movie. Mm-hmm. I just, there's stuff where I can kind of see it, but I was just like, I, this, and it like, none of it, I don't understand the trans read of it because none of it feels interestingly trans to me an actual trans person yeah um like it's maybe commenting on like the way that you can present different selves on the internet but not in a way that feels like great so anyway i was kind of disappointed in it but i realized i sorry i didn't mean to cut you off there i realized i forgot to put the best movie i watched on well, not the best movie I watched, but I forgot to put a very good movie on this list. Just put it down under Kagemusha and, uh, or, or put it, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off and then also derail the podcast. Put it between Night of the Hunter and Kagemusha, because my Cape Fear thoughts, I can tie into Night of the Hunter in a way that I can't do the rest. Anyway. Okay. Um. I guess when you get to it, I'll just start filling it in. Yeah. Anyway. So, sorry anyway, about that. Um. <laughs> And I give it a D minus because there are multiple shots where I saw stairs, but nobody ever went up or down them. Mm-hmm. But like in the apartment where um, Rosetta Stone lives, there's this like just like open spiral stair that goes up to who knows where because nobody ever goes up it. Um, but it was a cool looking stair, like well, and they showed it to me multiple times. I, but also it's like a D minus. Nobody ever went up it. Yeah. Like yeah. 
Um, anyway, I forgot if I mentioned the part where, uh, so they're like putting screens on things just like with, you know, digital editing, um, where you're just like taking another thing that you shot and shrinking it down and like putting it there. Um, but the wildest one is the, the main screen that she uses to talk to, cause it's also unclear how they become embodied because often she talks to them as if they are just like computer programs, but then they also like Ruby's going out and having sex with men. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, she mostly talks to them through a screen that they just put on, they just like shrunk down and put on uh, the microwave. Like with the, I don't under, I'm just imagining Tilda Swinton having to talk to a microwave. Yeah. And then them like putting in the footage of Tilda Swinton talking back to her. That's weird. It's fucking, it's, yeah. Um, it's, it's something where like, if this kind of weirdness is, is interesting, people can check it out. But also, um, it is not what I was expecting when I I read or when I heard you describe mm-hmm. a movie about a woman who makes robot clones of them herself that survive by drinking cum. Yeah, which is just implying like a a kind of movie that is going to be bad, but is I'm going to I know how I'm going to enjoy it. Um, and this, there are still parts that I was enjoyed, but it, it was, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's kind of disappointing. I, I feel like Nora might still end up watching it, but I don't know if I'm going to watch along with her. So yeah. we'll see. Um, it's the most early odds thing ever. I watched the least early odds thing ever because it came out in 1950. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched No Way Out. Um, directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, uh, 1950 film. Debut feature film of Sidney Poitier. Um, recently passed. Uh, didn't necessarily mean to watch this because he had passed, but it was definitely on my mind a little bit. Um, I was thinking about rewatching The Defiant Ones or Raisin in the Sun or In the Heat of the Night. Um, uh, but... I just ended up watching this. I watched something new instead of rewatching one of the other ones I really like. Yeah. So, um, Defiant Ones is okay. Uh, <laughs> Defiant Ones is a weird movie that would not get made today. Um, anyway, um, No Way Out, it, in some ways, is a really good movie. And in some ways, is really hampered by being a film from 1950 that I almost feel like In the Heat of the Night is then a response to this movie in some ways. In the Heat of the Night being a movie from 65, I want to say, maybe 67. Um, Sidney Poitier plays a doctor just, you know, just finished up his state boards in the start of the movie. His first night, um, as like a full, he's been training, but he is like on his own. He's not with the guy who's been supervising him this whole time. Um, who is Dr. Wharton, who ends up being a pretty important character. Um, and Wharton, um, sends him down to, uh, the prison ward and they get in these two criminals, um, uh, and or these these two guys who are kind of like known bad elements yeah. they were causing a ruckus down but like they get booked every week for something 
And this week they were they were causing a ruckus down at some bar. Um, this this cop trying to incapacitate trying to incapacitate them shoots both of them in the leg. So they're they're in the hospital to get this their legs fixed up, and the the brother, um, whose name I forget, um, like is having some sort of episode. They're they're like, I don't know, he's not talking, and he like isn't responding to things, you know, um, like Sidney Poitier is checking him out and he has like a, a cigarette like lit burning on his hand and the guy doesn't feel it at all. So uh, Sidney Poitier is like, what the hell's going on? So he goes in to do some test and and this guy dies all of a sudden. Um, the, the brother who lives, Ray, is like, you know, um, j- just to be like frank about what the movie is, like that N-word killed my brother, you know, and you hear a lot of the N-word in this movie. <laughs> a lot. Um, and it becomes a sort of, like, in the style of the 50s, a sort of, like, sorry, um, a, a... There, there are a lot of these movies through the 50s, I think, of, like, the social problem films of, like, you know, we're, we're doing this sort of drama thriller thing that is sort of, like, couched in a um, social issue. Man with the Golden Arm is one of the first ones of these that I saw that's like, oh, look at, you know, how drugs affect the community, etc. This is like, you know, look at the sort of racial prejudice that this black doctor faces. You know, if if his supervisor, um, like, if his supervisor had been the doctor on duty, if it had been a white doctor, there wouldn't have been any question, you know, but because it's a black doctor, everybody's like, well, maybe Sidney Poitier killed him. Maybe Sidney Poitier got tired of being called the N-word so many times and killed this guy, you know? Yeah. Uh, or killed his brother. Uh, anyway. Uh, you know, all sorts of things ensue. Um, we meet, you know, a couple different characters, like a hospital administrator who's like, you know... Um, the hospital administrator, who I think is like a really interesting character because he's like in some ways kind of an actually progressive guy. And in some ways is like, I just want everybody to pat me on the back for hiring a black man, you know? Yeah. Um, you man, mean, some things never change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, the, that character I think is really interesting because he could be in a movie today. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> um, you meet, um, this woman, the brother who died, had an ex-wife who's also been seeing the other brother on the side and you meet her. She gets involved with the supervisor doctor. You meet all of like Sidney Poitier's family. There's a lot of interesting scenes with them. Um, it's a pretty layered movie for like being just over 90 minutes, I think. Um, and I don't know, like at the end, you know, the, um, the brother who lives, like starts, you know, like pointing a gun at Sidney Poitier and like almost kills him. But then, you know, they, they say like the day is saved by, um, like a a white person helping him out. Um, none of this is like super surprising. Like this is, it is the movie you expected to be when you started up. Yeah. The thing that was a little, I really liked it. I had a really good time. The thing that was a little disappointing because this is a movie from 1950 is that like Sidney Poitier steals every scene that he's in, but does not get nearly 
nearly as many lines as like the white actors. He's billed above all the white actors, but does not get as much to say as all those white actors do. His doctor supervisor, who is, you know, this very like, you know, I think he's supposed to be this like upstanding moral guy. And I think by the standards of the film, he is. But by today's standards, he's not where he's like, I don't care if he's black or white. I just hired him because he's a good doctor, you know, um, like that guy gets way more development and, and things to say every time they're in a scene and either one of them could say it, the white guy says it, you know? Yeah. Um, and Sidney Poitier is like standing in the background of those shots, like, you know, making gestures or facial expressions that are interesting. And you're like, that guy's a movie star. Yeah. He's Sidney Poitier. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, I just don't think that um, he gets um, enough to like say there's, a, you know, um, another thing about this movie is that I think it like is trying. It tries very hard not to make Sidney Poitier the only black person in the movie. You meet all of his family. You meet, like, um, you know, other black folks who work at the hospital, like the guy who, like, brings the elevators up and down, you know. Um, you meet other people who just, like, live in his neighborhood. Um, but a lot of those characters are sort of, like, one-dimensional and not, like, oh, that's offensive stereotypes, but yeah. they are stereotypes, you know. Yeah. Like you get like two or three different black women and all of them are motherly in some way, you yeah. know? And, and one of them is literally the help and the other two are sort of coded in that way. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, it just feels like, it just feels like it is supposed to be this drama about him that sometimes gets taken away from him, even though he's like the top built guy in the, and I mentioned in the heat of the night, because in the heat of the night is like a very similar premise where he like rolls into town and he's accused of murder just because he's black, even though he had nothing to do with it. Um, and that is a movie where like, he's like acting his ass off. He's getting every line. He's getting all the character development, et cetera, et cetera. There's not anybody else to take that away from him in a, in a way that like, you know, I wonder if he took that role because he's like, it's like a similar kind of idea to, to this movie, but you know, he gets a lot more to do than he does in this movie. Yeah. Um, re really good. Um, it was in the criterion collection for their Fox noir series. I guess it's a noir. If it, <laughs> it doesn't feel like noir so much as like, this was the style of like, you know, yeah. these really sharp angular shadows were just the style at the time, you know? Yeah. The noir is one of those things. I think a lot of stuff falls into this. Like there are other things that, that fall in this, like in, in terms of genre where there are different ways to define it. And some of it is far broader and some of it is far yeah. more narrow. Um, and like, you know, I've talked previously about like the different ways that genre is like defined by fandom versus producer versus mm -hmm. director versus, you know, critic and things like that. But it's also like noir is one of those things you were like, even critics will have like wildly different, like this is what defines it. And some mm -hmm. of it is like purely stylistic. And some of it is like 
No, it's like these tropes of plot yeah. or whatever. Like um, this doesn't have this doesn't have many like noir tropes that I associate. It does a little bit. Um the director Joseph L. Mankiewicz wrote and directed a lot of other noir movies, wrote a bunch of n- movies that Otto Preminger directed. I think he wrote Laura, if I'm not okay. mistaken. I could be wrong about that. Yeah. Um I I could you tell I watched Criterion Collection's little like trailer for their Fox Noir collection. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, like I, I know for me when I think of noir, a big thing that I think about is the certain like uh post war like feeling of meaninglessness mm-hmm. in the face of like yeah. traditional forms of morality. Because like if you still have this like traditional frame of morality and then something like World War II happens, then like the fuck do you do? Yeah. Um, and it, like, I think of it as like, when I think of noir, I think of something that is responding to something very similar to like the Dadaist movement, but arriving at something very different. Yes. But like, are yes. is like responding to the same sort of like disillusionment in a, a generation of people. And this movie, like so <clears throat> many like social problem movies, I think has a very clear like moral center. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the the noirish thing from that angle, I guess, is that like it has a very clear like like this person is wrong to like doubt Sidney Poitier. All these white racists you see are bad people. Like and you know you also see like you know the these white men are doing like violence against women and like that is a expression of like white mat like violence against women and violence against black people comes from the same sort of like masculine place uh and possessiveness it's like interesting i think um but so it has like this very clear moral center the thing i will say that in that direction is that like it has that and it also will take a moment to be like but actually let's try for a moment to like understand like the psyche of this guy who watched his brother die doesn't know what happened like you know does it like doesn't have an education is very poor doesn't in his mind it's not a white and black thing it's a that guy went to medical school that guy has a lot of things in my life that i wish i had um and i want to like you know I am angry about that and I'm going to express some sort of violence to, to get that out of my system. You know, yeah. um, it's not sympathetic to him. It just like gives you like, it's, I, I don't think the movie is sympathetic to him. I think the movie is just like, we need this character to have a motivation that is not just, he is a racist, yeah. you know? <laughs> and that racism is always like couched in yes. other things. There's a, there's a really good, including moment. class fears. Yes. There's a really good moment um, where he's having an argument with his brother's ex, who he's also been, like, seeing on the side, where she's like, you know that guy didn't kill him. And he's like, well, I know, but, you know, economic anxiety, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and she's like, you know all that's bullshit. And he's like, but, but, but. And he gives another reason. And she's like, but you know that's bullshit. And he's, like, walking out the door. And he's got the door open. And he's like, fine, you caught me. I just want to kill an N word <laughs> and it's, yeah. it slams the door. And it's like, that's, re- that's like a really good scene because it's just like at the end of the day, like, you know, a lot of racism justifies itself in these big way, in, in these like sort of like 
justifies itself, quote unquote, in all these ways. But at the end of the day, like sometimes white men just are violent and racist, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a really good movie. It, it has its problems. Um, the, the big thing for me is that like the, the white characters get so much more development, I think, than the black characters do. But, um, yeah, it's doing its best for a 1950 movie, and I think it's pretty compelling. And yeah, so it's leaving the Criterion Channel, but you know, it's people can watch it. You know, yeah. Um, yeah we're talking about. I've watched some stuff that's leaving the Criterion Channel as well, mm. uh, and it's like this is coming out on February 1st. So sorry if you're yeah hoping to watch any of this stuff that we're talking about being on the Criterion Channel on the Criterion Channel. It's a weird thing because like I've been watching all this stuff. Because I can just hit a button and hit play, and, like, I have not been torrenting many movies lately because that is, like, a little inconvenient for me compared to just being able to hit play. So I feel bad about telling all these... I, I think every movie I've watched uh, is about to leave the Criterion channel. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, speaking of a movie that's about to leave the Criterion channel, will be gone by the time people are listening to this. Daughters of the Dust. I really want to see this. It sounds really good. Um, it was fabulous. Um, oh, oh, sorry. If sorry. I hadn't watched Kagemusha, I would say this is the best movie that I've watched. Uh, it's still up there. Very quickly. My No Way Out stairwell. Can you adjust that down to a C minus? There okay. is a there is a very nice stairwell in the like big climactic scene, but no one stands on it. They're all standing next to it. Um, someone gets shot and like lays on it. But no one walks up or down it. So C minus. Anyway, Daughters okay. of the Dust. Daughters of the Dust. Um, this was a fantastic movie. I'm going to have a little bit to say about it, but the big, like, right at the front. If you want to hear people talk about Daughters of the Dust, go listen to the Repertory Screenings episode on it. Because they say, they talk about it at length. Mm -hmm. um, and I haven't gone back and listened to that one recently, but I remember some of it. And I feel like a lot of the stuff that I want to say is in there. Um yeah, and you can listen to three people who watch the movie talk about it together mm -hmm. instead of just me monologue to Autumn for it about yeah, <laughs> you know about it for a little bit. Um, but anyway, um, one thing I'm going to say I don't know if you remember this or whatever. Um, this is the first movie from a female black director in America mm -hmm. that was like feature length. And aired in like normal theaters. Really, it was made in 1991. No way. Um, I would. I would. I guessed... feel like. I feel like this comes up on the episode too because I remember there was at some point where they talked a little bit about like some of the the difficulty, but like, like this is this is one of the things that um, I sometimes just like butt up against and can be frustrating doing stairwells picks is that like. To some degree, it's just like I I want to have good diverse films that we're covering. Mm -hmm. um, it feels easier to me to do that if we're doing like let's just like watch a bunch of different international stuff from different countries. Yeah, and yet even then, it's still like okay, well, there's like three countries in Asia that do a bunch of movies. Yeah, uh, there's like France and there's like some other European countries, and then like let's watch one of the uh, eleven movies made in this one African country or something. Yeah, and you're like. <laughs> Yeah. Um. But yeah, and th this is just another one. Nineteen ninety one. Was the first time that a like black 
the the thing that I said saw specifically said like African American mm. and most of my friends are like black is like mm. what the the term that they want yeah. used. Um because a lot of people just don't feel super connected to mm-hmm. like like African American mm. My friend from Ghana would be like, call me a Ghanaian American. Don't just call me African American. Yeah. I'm from, like, my family's from Ghana. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just like a weird term. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I'm specifically pointing out that, like, I don't know then because that's the statistic if there was, like, a, a film from a black director, like a black female director from another country. Yeah. That was shown. But yeah. Yeah. It's still just 1991. It's fucking wild. Oh my God. Um, the thing about doing a film podcast is sometimes you just remember that film is fucked. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, it was fucking fantastic. Um, it was incredible. One of the things that struck me is, so film is famously a fairly linear medium. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like often when things get nonlinear, you often get this thing that in my head, it, I like kind of associate it as a Dubro thing. Cause it happens in like movies that Dubro's love, which is like, Oh yeah, it's like nonlinear and it's broken up, but it's almost like part of the film is the puzzle of piecing together. Yeah. The actual order of events. Memento being like a literal puzzle. You yeah. Know? Um, and Memento being in my mind, one of the most linear versions of this nonlinear one. Cause it's like, no, yeah. it just literally just keeps, yeah, it's just the scene, but then it's like in yeah. the one from before. Yeah. <laughs> it's the most like, yeah. Anyway. Um, anyway, this is a, a nonlinear film, but it is nonlinear in a way that, uh, in my head is very literary. Um, I think of books as things where you can very easily, have a story happening and then new chapter or even middle of a chapter, you just go like when my father was young, blah, blah, blah. And you just start telling a story that happened Mm -hmm. 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, in the middle of telling another story and then you go back to that or you just shift onto something completely different. Um, now you're talking about like this, hope that you have for the future or whatever. Mm. Um, this is a movie that like flits through time in a very similar way where stuff will cycle back. You'll get scenes where you're like, okay, this is like basically the, this seems to be like the same scene that happened earlier in the movie. Um, it's just a continuation of it. Um, you know, one of the big things is that like the main narrator narrator for the movie is the unborn child of two of the characters. Huh? Um, who's telling the story of like these events that happened in, in 1902. Um, and it, it is in this way where like, there isn't a way to like piece everything together into a clear, here's when this happened, this happened because some of the stories aren't directly related to each other. They're unconcerned with how everything fits within linear time. Um, and I think it's part of the strength and what's like really impressive about this film. Um, is there's this like commingling of like past, present, and future in this way that is like very effortless, and that again I I think of as being so much easier to do in a book than in a movie. Um, and this achieves it, and also 
achieves it in ways where sometimes it will just cut to like, here's just a shot of like people running on the beach towards like some chairs and they're like maybe playing a game or something. Like it's not really explained. Mm-hmm. It's just like a shot that happens. It's just like evocative. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's also doing it in a way that doesn't feel. Sometimes this happens and it just feels like the script is like page for page from a book, and mm-hmm. they're just like shooting it. But then it's just all like what happens in the book. Whereas there are moments in this that just feel like this is not based on a book. It just feel it still feels yeah. filmic. Yeah, but it's like doing the same weird, um, like. Books are things where, like, time is always dilated. Because yeah. you don't know what rate people are going to read it. Right, exactly. And this is, this is a, a movie that feels like it, like, is effortlessly dilating time mm-hmm. in ways that I was just, like, floored by. That it, it did this and it did it, like, so effortlessly, seemingly. Um, I want to watch this. I, anyway. I knew that before. Yeah. But just hearing you talk about it, I'm like, I want to watch this. Yeah. I've got two days you, the listener, do not have two days, but I have two days. I'm going to try <laughs> yeah. and squeeze this in. Um, you might be able to find it somewhere else, dear listener, and that isn't even torn. I don't know where all this yeah. is. I'm just was pulling up Criterion and trying to work through stuff that I yeah. knew was leaving soon and figured I would watch. Um, I guess the other two big things, I'm specifically bringing up more aesthetic things, because again, if you want more about like the actual plot and what's going on, go listen to repertory screenings. But... Um, one is every single shot in this movie feels like it was shot during the golden hour. Um, everything mm. is these like beautiful, warm, like brown into like gold and orange and yellow. Um, like all of the whites are just like these like rich, creamy whites. Um, it's just like everything is just that beautiful, beautiful moment when the sun is like not quite setting, but going to set soon. Um, and that's just the entire film. Um, that sounds I, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's great. Uh, even the like interior shots are like this. Um, and the other thing is the, the one thing that sometimes hit me a little weird was the music. Cause it, so much of this film feels out of time. Um, like this, this feels like a movie that it could like in the same way that it is like playing with time and, and feeling like weirdly dilated and like moving through time. Uh, it's also a movie where like, if I just sat down and watched this, I don't know if I would be able to date it mm-hmm. except for the soundtrack, which is very clearly late early, uh, late eighties, early nineties, just in terms <laughs> of like how they're doing synth stuff. Um, but I still really enjoyed the soundtrack. Uh, it did feel like slightly, it, it was just weird that that was the one thing that was like fully situating me in terms of when this film was made. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did kind of enjoy it because a lot of it is doing this like style that I kind of associate with that period um, of like, it's kind of doing this like world music where they're pulling from African music and they're like blending it with these like synth sounds and it works really well. And it's coming to it very honestly at this like sound aesthetic that I enjoy and that often I get it through. There's just a moment where I really want to hear this kind of music and then I like listen to Graceland, an album that I think is like kind of <laughs> terrible, but sometimes I just want to hear Graceland. Yeah. I just want to hear yeah, it. Yeah, I, I like I like that sound, but also I hate that album. Like I hate what that album is. I was introduced to I, like I was introduced to Graceland when I was like twelve <laughs> or thirteen, and I was like, Oh, I really like this. Yeah, and like me too. Within like two or three years was like old enough to be like, this is fucked. Yeah. Yeah, I had a, I had a similar arc. Um <laughs> 
My dad famously did not listen to much music, but did listen to, uh, in addition to, mostly he listened to doo-wop, mm-hmm. but also listened to Graceland and uh, a few select Michael Jackson albums. I I have a story that is sort of like damning of my parents in such a way that I will tell you off mic, <laughs> but like, we're getting into like libel and slander if I say this into a <laughs> microphone about my parents. Um, so Anyway, to wrap this up, uh, stairwells I think is an F, which again, remember that the quality of the stairwell is in no way indicative of the quality of the movie. I love this movie very, very much. Yeah. Most of it is set on like beaches or outside. Uh, most of the interior shots really seem to be like single story, like makes sense for where this is set. You're not going to have a bunch of like floors in a really hot part of america right so um yeah f i don't think i i don't remember seeing a single other than like maybe like three steps going up onto a porch right (laughs) so great Um, fucking movie cape fear cape fear 1962 to be clear i have never seen have you seen the scorsese cape fear um i think i seen I think I saw part of the Scorsese Cape Fear um, on cable one time, maybe. Like, a long time ago. Long enough that I had cable, (laughs) you know? Um, Or or maybe, because I really really like Shutter Island. I think Shutter Island's a fantastic film. And I think maybe I told someone, hey... I like Shutter Island. And you're like, oh, you should watch Cape Fear, this other like horror thriller thing that Scorsese did. And I might have like started it, and I was 15, so I got bored or realized I didn't have time or something. Yeah. I I don't know. Anyway, let's for all intents and purposes, I've not seen the Scorsese Cape Fear, but um, there are a lot of Robert Mitchum films on the Criterion Channel right now, and a lot of Robert Fitch- Mitchum films are about to leave. I'm a big Robert Mitchum fan, a huge Robert Mitchum fan. <laughs> so yeah. are we going to um, talk about any more Robert Mitchum soon? We're just about to, because <laughs> um, as a person who Night of the Hunter top 10, 15 movie ever made for me, um, Cape Fear is profoundly disappointing in some ways, um, which is weird to say because I think it's a good movie. Um, I just, I just kind of put it on because I was like, oh, I didn't realize Robert Mitchum and Gregory Pecker in this. I like both of those actors a lot. I'll just put this on. Sure. And, um, it's such a weird movie. It's 1962. It's in black and white. It's got Gregory Peck and Robert Mitchum. So in some ways it has this very classic Hollywood feel to it. The, the particular way that it is black and white feels so classic Hollywood. And like, yeah. j- just that, like, you can tell that look apart from, like, French movies coming out in 1962. You can tell that apart from, like, black and white Hollywood movies from 1972. It just feels that there's a particular moment in time that it feels like that. But also... Because it is 1962, some of, like, the the moral codes are getting a little more, like, lax, and you can, like, be a little more explicit about things, or you can have a little bit of darker subject matter in a movie. 
Um, and so Cape Fear, in some ways, I think rehashes a lot of things that Night of the Hunter does, but in a way that feels like ickier, more exploitative, more like let's shock people. You know, I feel like it is a movie that goes for shock a lot. Um, because, um, Robert Mitchum plays a, like, plays a person who, they can never say the word rape in this movie, but there is a lot of rape in it, <laughs> or, or, or talked about in it, anyway. Um, Robert Mitchum, um, was raping a woman, Gregory Peck saw him, Gregory Peck, um, like, is a lawyer and gets this guy sent to jail. You know, it's a couple years later, Robert Mitchum is out, and this whole time he's been in jail, he was reading up on the law. And so he's devised this plan in his mind where he's going to harass Gregory Peck and his family, like, completely legally. You know, he's not going to, like, you know, assault them. He's just going to, like, sit in a car outside their house for 12 hours and, like, unsettle them. Um, and all this stuff. And it is a movie that is like, it's kind of another, like, kind of another, like, social problem film where it's like, what's a man supposed to do when, like, the law can't help him? Are the laws good? Are the laws bad? You know, um, Gregory Peck, he's like an upstanding, like, upper class white man. He can, like, go ask the police to, like, do stuff for him and they'll just do it in a way that like Robert Mitchum as a, as a poorer white man, um, you know, is going to get harassed constantly by the police at the behest of this richer white man. You know, uh, I think this movie is like not cognizant of race in like any way, um, in a way that feels weird sometimes, Yeah, you know, (laughs) because it is so concerned with like, Look how awful it is that, like, or not look how awful, like, ooh, is it bad that Gregory Peck can just get the cops to do anything he wants for him? Um, in a way that if you made this movie now would be racially charged, but this movie is just, like, no thoughts head empty about race. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, like, it's very concerned with, like, what is the law allow? Why? Why? But also, you can't convict a person of a crime he hasn't committed, and so, like, it's kind of good that the law is structured in this way, you know, all this stuff. Um, and eventually, Robert Mitchum, like, sort of, like, puts his cards on the table in this, like, um, pretty good scene where him and Gregory Peck are sitting down for, like, a drink. Um, and Gregory Peck's like, if I give you, like, $30,000, will you just leave this fucking town? <laughs> and, Gre- and Robert Mitchum's like... $30,000 is not equivalent to eight years of my life spent in prison. Um, he deserved to be in prison, but whatever. Anyway, um, Robert Mitchum sort of is like, you know, because it's a, it's a movie from 1962 and you can be darker. So Robert Mitchum reveals that his plan is that he is going to, like, he intends to rape their 13-year-old daughter because he knows that Gregory Peck being a lawyer has seen trials and is not going to make his daughter go through the horrors of having like to sit on a stand and have a doctor like question you 
to have a lawyer cross-examine you, to have a judge, to have a jury, to have all of these people sort of like poking and prodding at your body. He knows that he can get away with raping a 13-year-old because like Gregory Peck is not going to put her through that process. And so like sort of escalates into this thriller where, you know, Gregory Peck like hatches a plan to kill Robert Mitchum, you know, um, and it's dark yeah. <laughs> and it's, it feels like it feels gratuitous. It feels like it's 1962. Now we can't, we can do this in a movie. So let's do this in a movie with very little concern for like, is any of this like fun to watch yeah. <laughs> you know it feels very like tantalizing and sensational in a way that is like oh I, I i just feel gross after watching this a little bit yeah and it's also so weird because they can't say the word rape you know it's like i'm gonna have my way with her or i i i did this but robert mincham does literally in one scene like just rape a random woman in town um, and she doesn't want to like go to the police about it for the same reasons that like Gregory Peck's daughter wouldn't want to go to the police about it. Um, but they can't say like, he did things to me, you know, yeah. <laughs> and you know what the things he did are, but you don't, it, it's such a weird thing. It feels so yeah. out of time. It feels between two eras. I think it is ultimately, I think I gave it like four stars on Letterboxd. I think it is like. I think it is worth watching, um, but there is definitely like an ickiness to it that is like, maybe it may, I think in the moment of watching it, I'm like, this is a pretty compelling movie. This is really dark. And in the like aftermath of watching the movie, I'm just like, think about it. I'm like, oh, that's gross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Um, Night of the Hunter. Oh, Stairs. Stairs. I gave it a B plus. I wrote that right after I watched the movie. I do not remember why I gave it a B plus. Should we shift that down to a B minus? <laughs> Maybe. I don't want to like totally be like, oh, trash ass stairs. But I'm like, if I can't remember, we're going to just like bump you down a little bit. Yeah. Um, Night of the Hunter, which is in some ways. Um, I, Night of the Hunter. I wanted to talk about this before Night of the Hunter, because I feel like Night of the Hunter goes over so much similar subject matter with a very similar Robert Mircham character. And even though it is less explicit, handles all of it so much better. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is another one where I, part of me is like, dear listener, just go listen to repertory screenings. I listened to the episode cause I was just like, I want to see what all they said. And I was like, this is everything. Yeah. <laughs> this is like basically everything I want to say. Yeah. Uh, they even got into the aesthetics, which I feel like we hit more often than repertory screenings. Um, but yeah, they, they talk about the two shots that I was going to bring up, which one is the, in their bedroom, which is like mm -hmm. an attic room basically. Mm -hmm. Cause it has like sloped ceilings. Um, and then also the down to the basement where there's the stairs in the basement and both of them are like, they built a set mm -hmm. and they have it in like an otherwise dark, you know, like soundstage area. Hmm. And they just pull it all the way back so that everything else just falls into darkness. But you get, like, the entire set 
of mm-hmm. like, here's the basement with the stairs going up or they pull all the way back where it's just like, here's the entire bedroom with the like roof and the like light shining down through the roof. And, you know, um, Mitchum's character is like looking up into it and gesturing and stuff. Like, mm. uh, we talk about both of those in repertory screenings. Those are the two best shots. And then, you know what? It actually, the one thing that they didn't talk about that's great is this is a movie from 1955. Uh-huh. The number of helicopter shots in this movie astonishing. Inc- yeah, incredible. <laughs> um, it's also so funny because it starts. I mean, I think there's like maybe a tiny bit beforehand, but it starts with basically like there's a helicopter shot and it's like getting closer to him driving in the car in the the grass, and then immediately cuts to back projected. Here's a yeah. Here's like trees, and then just like in a set car acting yeah. like doing a little monologue. Yeah. Um, it's just such a funny cut. The the one shot before the helicopter is also incredible because the one thing before the helicopter is um the the matte painting of, of stars yes and then the cutouts of the orphans and the and the um orphan mother what it, i don't like the the there's a lady in this movie who ends up adopting a bunch of like orphans sort of um and you get like over this matte painting just cutouts of just their face um, as she reads them this Bible story about like don't not trusting false prophets, which is you know, yeah. then you go to Robert Mitchum's character, who's the sort of false prophet, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's That's incredible. also an incredible shot. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, people talk about this like somewhat referencing German expressionism, um, like just referencing that this is like a. I almost think of something like Sunrise here as well of like, this is like almost gesturing at and like pulling from things like Sunrise is specifically what it is because like talkies were already happening at the time. And Mm -hmm. it's like what talkies do is like fundamentally change how movies are made for a while because you just can't do the kind of shots that you could do in silent films when you have to have, microphones that are recording what people are saying Mm -hmm. and you have to you have to place them in lamps and Mm. things and people have to stand close to them to pick up um because they don't have like more advanced stuff to pick this up and they haven't like really started developing overdubbing as a technique and stuff yet Mm -hmm. and so everything gets like so uh solid and grounded and like it's just people in a room talking to each other at the very beginning of talkies and sunrise is a movie that is like trying to show everything that it almost is being lost. Yeah. Um, and this is a movie that in some ways I think is, is gesturing at like, I forget exactly when color film starts, but like this is a movie that feels like it is really trying to embrace. Like this is what black and white can do, you know? Um, like black and there's just these kind of shots that you can do that have these like depth of field or like, all of this in black and white. And it's like really trying to showcase that at a time where I don't remember if there were some color films already starting to come out, but like, this is like really like, yeah. no, I want to like do something that is like what can be done with film right now. The, the thing about color in Hollywood is so weird because um, like it was going to become popular. Um, Wizard of Oz hits in 39 but then the war puts that on hold yeah. and like destabilizes the economy. I think by 55, it was probably starting to become the more dominant mode, you know? Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, it feels so much like a love letter to, um, like, black and white. And, you know, like, like Cape Fear, um, seven years later, is also in black and white. But I feel like that's probably like, oh, we spent our money getting Gregory Peck. Like, how do we cut costs? Black and white. You know? It feels like... Black and white lasts longer, but also, like... I think even when color happens, there's a certain changes that happen to the way that people are shooting black and white that are just based on like yeah. how people make movies is changing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the way that like movies made today that don't have a ton of CG special effects <clears throat> are still often shot differently. Yes. Because people are still shooting with the ways that have been developed for like the way yes. that we handle CG. Yes. Um, yes. In a weird where it's like, it's not necessary really other than just like people have built up skills with this style now. Yes. Um, and this is just one that like really feels like it, it is even like intentionally trying to harken back to you. Here's some like really good stuff. It, it's almost the thing that's saying like, look, stuff like German expressionism for a while could not be done because of what talkies were. Mm-hmm. I'm now going to do it again Yeah. with like, yeah, you know, actually having a recording of the actors acting. Um, in, in this way that like, I don't know if it, that was fully intention, but that's kind of, mm-hmm. for me watching it now, that was a big thing that I got from it. The, the two shots that always stick out in my mind as like the shots in this movie are the kids sailing down the river and you get the river and you get the boat. It's probably on a soundstage, obviously, yeah. but it looks real. It looks like a real on location river. And then behind it. The the night sky is a matte painting with just, like, white dots for stars. Not even, like, oh, we're going to try and make these look like stars. It is just a fake night sky. Yeah. It looks gorgeous. And then the other one I think about is just a minute or two later, um, the kids uh, sleep in a barn overnight. They're on the run from Robert Mitchum's character. And the sun's coming up, and you get, like, the the... On the sunrise, you see him on a white horse in, like, a total 100% silhouette um, as he's, like, coming over the hill, like, singing um, the the Bible song that he sings throughout this movie. Um, It is just, like, haunting and good. Yeah. And you get the cut back to um, John, the main kid, being like, doesn't he ever sleep? You know? Yeah. Um, (laughs) It's also a great moment. This movie... I'm really glad I went to bed right after I watched this because like the, 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 the sort of like I talk in a weird mix of like Midwest, non-accented, gay accented, like stuff. I watched this movie and I just like started talking like how my cousins and my grandma talk (laughs) because the Southern accents are intense and fake (laughs) um yeah um i guess my one other thought is it's just funny to me how much any like potential anti-religious like reading here just fully gets like subsumed into like he is the false prophet he is the antichrist like He's the the man who probably isn't even a preacher and can mm-hmm. just spout scripture to to deceive people. Yeah. Um. And this is like the this like 
folding in of like any use of religion for for bad things is just being like no that's like the antichrist yeah. it's not an actual critique of us it's it's so it's so interesting the ways that it is like very precise i i um obviously when i'd seen this i've seen this the third time i've seen this i think when i'd seen this movie the first two times this sort this stuff sort of like hit but like this time it was really what i took away from it of like um, the way that it is about, like, a con man and all the tools at this sort of con man's disposal, you know, sexual manipulation, uh, um, um, you know, manipulating, like, the most vulnerable people in society, i.e. children and widows, um, and, and, like, you know, the way that he uses religion to manipulate people, and all of these things are sort of tied together, and I thought it was just, like, so interesting. Obviously, like, I recognize that but on the first couple times i watched this i thought of it as this sort of very like poetic fairy tale sort of thing because it is yeah um but this time i honed in on like okay but under that fairy tale is this very like real like very dark thing of like how manipulators go about the the work of manipulating people um and, and yeah it just like you, 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 they have to pull back a little bit from it by introducing a good religious yeah. character. They have to. <laughs> they can't. They are not allowed to make a movie in 1955 that is just so like, look what you know you <laughs> Bible thumpers do, you know, or whatever the fuck. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, I actually I thought a lot about Smooth Talk watching this hmm. because I think that Night of the Hunter is even more like fabulistic and like. Almost in the style of like these Bible par- parables that are being quoted, mm-hmm. um, where stuff sometimes just happens because it's like the it is like fable logic or like parable logic of like well then they get in a boat and they go down river because that's just like what happens yeah. in these stories yeah like um, there are moments where like characters' behaviors or motivations seem to be purely driven by like it being a story right. Um, in a way that is, is fine. Like I, I enjoy this. I'm not like critiquing like, oh, it's not super realistic, all the characters. <laughs> um, but it, it made me think of, of Smooth Talk as well. Cause the end of Smooth Talk is this guy who convinces this girl to get in the car with him and, and ride. And, you know, the story it was based on, it was implied that she's murdered and, and this one, she comes back, but it's still implied that like bad things happened in the mm-hmm. car. Um, and what I was thinking about, because that also, like, especially that final moment has this almost, like, parable or fable, like, feeling of, like, oh, here's the tempter and everything. Um, and one of the things that I was thinking is, like, in some ways to tell the story about these, like, kind of manipulative um, and, like, horrible men who who are, like, using these, these means to, like, you know, to tempt and seduce and like do these awful things um some ways like to to tell the story you have to kind of do this thing where you enter into that like fable or parable space because it is the space where you can have the logic still work of you as the audience being like this person is just like clearly a horrible horrible person but then still be able to like believe that the characters are are swayed in some way yeah yeah um and, like, you have to, like, enter into that because otherwise what you fall into is, like, 
the weird fetishization of serial killers that happens in like mm-hmm. so much true mm-hmm. crime stuff mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where it's just like, no, he truly is a super charming guy. And that's how he like got away with everything. And I, I think sometimes that like ends up being worse, uh-huh. like as a thing to put out into the yes. world to be like, wow, this like serial killer is truly mm. just like charming and great and irresistible and like you as the f- presumed female audience of this true crime should find the actor playing him like hot and attractive. Uh-huh. Um, I think there's a, a certain like thing that happens here that that is interesting. And I think important to be like, at once we want to like show the, the means by which this person can get their way, but also like always keep at the forefront, like the artifice of, who they are as a person right. by like entering the artifice into the film itself. Right. Like both night of the hunter and smooth talk, especially towards the end feel like films that are like intentionally playing with the artifice of cinema. Yeah. In a way that I think is important for like portraying this kind of character. You're, you're making me have a thought and I can't express it because I don't want to spoil a, a thing that we're going to podcast about in the future. <laughs> And so if you want me to just get my thought out, you can mark this and we can cut this or we can just like not, I can just not is it, talk is about it. Is it like here on the list? It's not on this list. No, it is on a different secret list that we've, um, yeah. Oh yeah. 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 That, that the thing that we're going to, we're going to really <laughs> podcast about in the future. Yes. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> I know what you're getting at. Um, th- there's whatever. Do we do we want to? No, no, no. Let's just move on. <laughs> okay. Well, what's your next movie? Because I don't know what it is. Deep Cover. Um, I do not recall who directed oh, yeah. it. Um, I do know. Oh, directed by Bill Duke. Um, released in 1992. Oh, we should before we close it out. What's our stairwell oh. for Night of the Hunter? I, I'm slightly hesitant to immediately go to an S, although the stairwell mm-hmm. in the basement is really good. There's a part of me that wants to lean towards an A+. Cause That's I, where I was thinking, too. Because I feel like if you're doing this German expressionism thing and you have that, like, stair... Like, you could have done more with it. Yes. Um, That's the but one, also, it was really yeah, good. It's really good. Um, There's another set of stairs. There's also, they hide in the stairs when yes, he's, like, menacing yes. them in the... Yeah, but yeah. they don't really do much with those stairs. They don't do as much. Um, you just get really, the children it's the, sleeping. Yeah, there. it's the one into the basement. That's the the big the big key. He's a menacing German expressionist monster. He literally the thing I thought about <laughs> uh, is so funny. Is he literally like the children are running up the stairs out of the basement, and he like Frankenstein runs at them, his arms fully extended, just making like claws in a way that no human person has ever run because it is just fairy tale. You know, it is just like ridiculous and, 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 you know, not real. Anyway, deep cover, deep cover. Hey listeners, autumn is about to do the entire plot of the movie deep cover. So if you don't want those spoilers, um, I would recommend skipping ahead about 15 minutes. So it's going to be about, one hour, 45 minutes. Uh, you'll hear the Kage Musha when you, music when you get there. So that's when you'll know it's safe again. Back to the program.
If we had not watched Kagemusha, and I had not rewatched one of my uh, favorite movies, Deep Cover would absolutely be the best fucking movie I'd seen this entire year so far. <laughs> Deep Cover is fucking incredible. <laughs> Deep Cover is good. <laughs> um, holy shit, I just... Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I... As soon as you said it, I was like, I should have remembered this because you were sending me pictures of hot Lawrence Fishburne. <laughs> and I know he was not in a movie from 1962. <laughs> Deep cover, old enough movie that he is credited as Larry Fishburne, which I got very tickled by. Yeah. <laughs> so for people who are not familiar, one, great news. If you're a streaming person, this is not on Criterion Channel. Um, it. The Criterion Channel did, or Criterion Collection recently put out a Blu-ray and DVD of this, but it is on HBO Max if that is a streaming service that you have access to. Um, so, Deep Cover is a 1992 film. The 1992-ness is very key. You must remember that George Bush is running for re-election as they are making this movie. That's important. <laughs> um, Lawrence Fishburne is playing a cop um the opening scene is you see like his dad doing coke um and like gets um shot trying to rob a convenience store to get coke money um so like from the jump like lawrence fishburne is like a black person who is like very personally like affected by like the crack epidemic um in black communities uh in that time you know uh the first scene where he's actually played by lawrence fishburne and not a 10 year old pretending to be lawrence fishburne is um he is selected uh by the lapd to go deep undercover they want um they want him to infiltrate um this drug ring you know they have this like street level guy and then they want him to get to the that guy's boss to get to that guy's boss and that guy's boss is like a quote-unquote latin american politician another important thing is that this is after the dark alliance stories are coming out latin american politician is like very clearly supposed to be a nicaraguan politician in a way that they are not allowed to say that on a in a movie yeah but that is what that is supposed to be <laughs> um so so it, this is like very engaged with like Ronald Reagan, like, sold crack to the black community <laughs> um, yeah. to fund, like, wars to put fascists in power in other countries. That's what this movie's about <laughs> in a way that, like, knocked me on my ass. I did not know you could do that. <laughs> so, but basically, yeah, he's like, we want you to get the guy one level down from the politician. Mm -hmm. Um because and like the the you know the LAPD his boss guy is like well you know we don't we don't want to upset the politician he's like too big a fish for us but like my guys in the state department want to like you know rattle him a little bit want to scare him a little bit so Lawrence Fishburne um gets like ingratiated in this uh thing and it's you know the classic sort of undercover cop story of like i had to compromise all my mor morals et cetera et cetera 
Um, this is like a very deliberate noir throwback movie. And so Lawrence Fishburne gets all this like really good narration that he just sells the ever loving shit out of in a way that like, he's Lawrence Fishburne. Cause he's Lawrence Fishburne. He's not Harrison Ford. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, he like, and like the narration is like very specific about like, you know, um, he like doesn't want to do this and he has to. And like, you know, um, he gets in a situation where he either has to kill a person or blow his cover. And his boss is like, you need to kill that guy. Um, and he kills that guy. And, like, the narration is like, you know, I killed another black man. I killed a man whose father looked like my father, whose mother looked like my mother, and my white bosses didn't care. You know, the police didn't come and get me. I could have killed three more black men that night. No one would have cared. No... Um, whenever he's selling drugs, other cops who don't know he's in undercover have been harassing him. But when he's killing other black people, no cops come for him. You know, it's like very specific about what it is about in a way that just absolutely shocked me. And it just gets more and more this as he like keeps like he climbs the ladder of this, um, of this drug ring. And it is like compelling the other the other part of this is that um he becomes buddies with um jeff goldblum who is this sort of like upper middle class white guy who is just selling drugs because like jeff goldblum is playing a lawyer who would live in a mcmansion without any of this drug money but is like i want a bigger mcmansion so i'm gonna start selling coke (laughs) um and, like, wants to get into his whole thing is he wants to, like, get enough money from selling coke that he can get out of the coke business and into the synthetic drugs business. Because Jeff Goldblum's character wants to be selling drug to rich white, selling drugs to white people instead of black people because they have more money, you know? Yeah. And it's just, like, good. It's so good. And basically, you get to the climax. Like, um... Lawrence Fishburne has like thrown away all his morals, everything he cares about. And he finally has, he has the politician he wasn't supposed to go after. He doesn't just have like the top level drug dealer. He can like implicate the politician he was supposed to go. He wasn't supposed to go after. And he goes to his boss and his boss is like, no, no, we can't go after him. And he's like, why? He's like, well, the State Department changed its mind, and now the State Department wants that guy to be the president of the country that he's from next year, and so you cannot go after him. And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Why did I sell all these drugs to, like, I, like, am directly responsible to, like, deaths of people in my community, you know? Yeah. And you're telling me I can't, like, it was all for nothing? And the guy's like, yeah, I'm telling you it was all for nothing. <laughs> um... The other thing that is, like, happening simultaneous to this is, like, a very minor character who we've seen very occasionally that we know is, like, a crooked cop um, comes to um, one of the other drug dealers who, like, Jeff Goldblum is having beef with um, and is, like, says to him, like, literally says to him, like, hey, the Republican candidate for the mayor of L.A. is not... Um, doing so hot in the polls right now, do you have some sort of like, uh, do you have 
a drug dealer that I can arrest to scare up some Republican votes. He literally says, can you scare me up some Republican votes? (laughs) And I was just like, what the fuck? (laughs) Um, Like, it is... It is explicitly stated, like, for some reason, they're not allowed to say, like, Nicaragua, but they are allowed to say, like, this politician golfs with George Bush. Like, they're allowed to... It blows my mind! (laughs) Um, And, like, literally, like, you know, six months after this movie comes out, Bill Clinton wins the election by being tough on crime, you know, and, like, cracking down on all of this. Um, Anyway, the... Lawrence Fishburne eventually decides, like, fuck the cops and just becomes an actual drug dealer for a little while. (laughs) And then um, Jeff Goldblum upsets him and he, like, kills Jeff Goldblum. And it's, like, a little gay when he kills Jeff Goldblum. Um, Just a little bit. A little bit gay. They've had a running joke of, like, hey, Lawrence Fishburne's character, what's the craziest thing you've ever done sexually? He's like, I'm not going to answer that. And then, you know, later, Lawrence Fishburne's like, hey, Jeff Goldblum character, what's the craziest thing you've ever done sexually? And it's ha, ha, ha. And yeah. he's like, he's Lawrence Fishburne pointing a gun end, at he's him. He's like, you know what's the craziest thing I've ever done sexually? <laughs> Kill my dude best friend. <laughs> no, no, he literally, Lawrence Fishburne's pointing a gun at Jeff Goldblum. And he's like, hey, man, what's the craziest thing you've ever done sexually? And Jeff Goldblum's like, you're going to ask me that right now. Pow! Shoots Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> um. Anyway, the the ending is really good. The ending is like, Lawrence Fishburne is able to like take down some of the kind of sort of take down the drug ring kind of sort of like knock his boss down a few pegs isn't really going to like ruin anybody's life. Yeah. Like, like he got some sort of like feeling of like, Oh, I fucked up these guys like next year of their lives, but they're still going to be like wildly wealthy, famous, you know, who cares? Um, not famous, but whatever. Um, and then, you know, he goes to his father's grave and he's like, you know, was I right to become a drug dealer for a while? I don't know. That's just a choice we all have to make. And it's just so like good. It's so fucking God. I love this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry to just tell you the entire plot of the movie, but I just think it is one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want to rate the stairs? Okay, so thing about this movie being in LA is that like you see all these high rises, but because you know it's LA, it's hot. You don't actually like go up in the high rises much, you know. Um, you get a lot of like ground floor shots, and when there are like big towers, there's elevators. No one's going upstairs, you know. Yeah. So I was really worried. I was going to like, I'm going to have to give this an F. There hasn't been a single goddamn step in this movie, you know. But then, um, so Jeff Goldblum and Lawrence Fishburne are at a drug deal with the politician. This cop who's been like talking to Lawrence Fishburne every now and then, like, you know what you're doing. You're like, you know, killing like black people by selling drugs. You're like pointing a gun at my daughter's head, basically, you know, um, and, 
like that guy's at the bottom of the stairwell and Lawrence Fishburne's at the top and he doesn't want to have to shoot this cop, but he's going to have to shoot this cop to not blow his cover. And he's like, get out of here. And he's like pointing a gun at him. He's coming down this cool stairwell. It looks sick. Lawrence Fishburne's got the aviators on. He's got the suit. It's 1992. So it's a good suit. <laughs> um, I was really worried they were not going to come through for me. Um, but they did at the very last possible moment. They hit me with a very good stairwell. I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it an A. It's, it's, you know, the scene is very good. The stairwell, it's all right. I'm going to give it an A. Um, we should move on to Kagemusha, but also I have have to pee. We're two hours into this podcast. Yeah. You, dear listener, maybe may have heard a little ringing sound. Um, I think I've said this on other podcasts before, but that is my alarm that goes off at 1130. That's like, you should really take your sleepy time meds. (laughs) So it's telling me I should take my melatonin. I'm going to go pee and not do that because we have to talk about Kagemusha, a three hour movie that we both loved. (laughs) And then she's got to have it. The ostensibly main movie that we're talking about. Um, It's kind of crazy that like, (laughs) as much as I just talked about how much I love deep cover, Kagemusha is a better movie than deep cover. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sorry listeners about um, just telling you the entire plot of deep cover, a movie which I very earnestly think you should watch. I, I, It's weird because, like, it's noir, and, like, if you've seen a movie about an undercover cop, uh, undercover cop, like, you kind of know, like, oh, he's going to compromise a bunch of his morals, and if you've seen noir, you know that, like, it's not going to end good. Yeah. But, whatever. You should go watch Deep Cover. Maybe we'll put in a spoiler warning. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) I'll try to remember to do that. Don't, Don't worry about it too much. Um, yeah. Um, best movie ever made? (laughs) Kind of. A little bit. Um, just a little bit. This is really, so I guess the backstory (laughs) here. Um, I'm a, I'm a big Kurosawa Akira fan. Um, and I own 
all but three of his movies on DVD. Um, I've seen those other three movies. I've just rented them. Mm. But I never, like, got my own copy. Not even necessarily... The Quiet Duel is the big one where I'm just like... That... Scandal's probably my least favorite, but also it came in a box set with mm-hmm. other ones. Whereas, like, The Quiet Duel, I just never had a big urge to get. Yeah. Um, some of the other ones are just ones that, like, maybe it was just weird trying to find a copy or something. Yeah. Um, but one of the ones that I have that I never watched was Kage Musha. Mm-hmm. It was the only film um, from Akira Kurosawa. Kurosawa Akira. Mm-hmm. to do with the again <laughs> just in my brain that's the mm-hmm. way that I knew it for a while um <clears throat> and I don't entirely know why this ended up being the one like it it's fuzzy the exact like logistics here cause some of it was that there was a part where I just watched a bunch of his movies and I was like I just want to watch all his movies and I started doing it chronologically so I started with his very first films and was just working through um but, like, I know, like, I had seen Dreams very early on, but I don't know why exactly I skipped over Kage Mushu and went to, like, Rhapsody in August and Maradayo. Other than I know that I was going to watch Kage Mushu when we showed it at our, like, the film club that I was president of. Um, but then I think I was, like, sick or something and I couldn't make it. So the copy that I have is the one that, like, Yana's film sent us. Hmm. But, and I, like, I just had it, but I just never watched it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it became this thing of like, at that point it was like, this is the last Kurosawa film. Although I guess there's some TV documentary about horses that he did that I haven't seen. So I guess there's still a, a Kurosawa movie I haven't seen. But it was like, this is the last one that I have not seen. And mm-hmm. it just, there's always like a certain sadness when I watch the last direct, like movie from your director that I know and who mm-hmm. is, um... Like, it's just dead. It's not going to make movies more. Yeah. Anymore. So. Um, but yeah, we watched it. I was like, I said, I wanted to watch it this year. And then Criterion was like, well, we're getting rid of it at the end of January. And I was like, <laughs> sooner than I thought this year, but let's go. Um, and it was incredible. Mm-hmm. It's um, so good. So the thing that I knew it was going to be, uh-huh. which is still incredible is, like, they got, like, thousands of guys and have them on screen. Yes. <clears throat> um, you just, There's just thousands of guys in some of these shots. Yes. It's incredible. That I knew. It's astonishing. But in my head, this was, like... I knew the basic plot of, like... You know, the Shingen, this, like, uh, Shogun, dies and is replaced with, like, this near-identical double that they find. Mm. Um, played by the same actor. Yeah, played by the same actor, because you barely see the Ming, like, mm. the actual original guy in this. Yeah. Um, and he's leading it, and it's, you know, them trying to keep it secret while, like, continuing, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they're going off against Nobunaga, and I figured it was not going to end well, because I, I know, I don't super well know this thing in history but like i know that like i know shingen's not the one who killed nobunaga i know (laughs) that yeah (laughs) in fact when i think about it i kind of think it's like was a little bit more (laughs) the other way around happened but anyway (laughs) um so i kind of knew like the basic plot of it and so i kind of figured like okay i know that i know that there's a shit ton of guys in it 
this is just Kurosawa doing like the most war epic Kurosawa ever. Part that I did not expect is how much it is a comedy of errors. Yeah. How funny it would be. I did not expect it's that. It's so funny. I Kurosawa has some humor in him, like in his movies, but I I just don't think of him being funny in the way that this movie is funny yeah. most of the time. It, it it almost reminded me of um Amadeus in the way that like when I think about this movie in the abstract, it is a drama. It is an epic. It is, you know, all of these things. But the moment to moment of watching this movie, it's not a comedy. I'm just laughing a lot as the drama and the epic. I yeah. almost said the epicness. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 20, 2002. As the, almost everyone's saying epic. I've, I've like I a lot know. of, you know. 2008? Whatever. Um, yeah, 2008 feels right to me. Anyway, um, yeah, there's just like, there's not jokes. There is just stuff that happens that feels like a little like the drama is like so elevated that it feels a little absurd sometimes. Or, oh, I can't believe that they got out of this, this like entanglement. You yeah. Know? Um, um, what's also great about it is. This is a thing that I was laughing at and that, again, for me, a lot of comedy, th- it was not my introduction to comedy. That's not why I go to Crow High, but I just think like Cromartie High School is just like a phenomenal comedy. And so it is this thing that the way that I think about comedy is like become structured around. Mm-hmm. And part of what's great about Cromartie High School is that it will repeat jokes in a way where you become aware of the structure, but the humor now does not is not in like the punchline, but is in the journey of how do we get to the punchline? Yes. Yes. Um, and it, it also not being the, like, we just draw it out ceaselessly. Um, that's also like not how it's operating, but it is like the actual seeing how we arrive at, like, I know what the punchline is going to be, but I don't know how they're going to get there from here. Yeah. But I know it. Yes. Um, and then also some of the comedy comes from, the punchline is coming. You as the audience know the punchline is coming. The character also seems to be in a less like meta way, aware that the punchline is coming. Yeah. And we are now getting like in Cromarty High School, we will get like actual interior monologues of the character like being stressed out about like what is about to happen. Which it, that being in the punchline, yes, um, and then like trying to like analyze like almost like how can I get out of the punchline? <laughs> this is, but this, this is. I feel like there's like a certain amount of this where like there's moments where we're like we like make the joke uh-huh. of like oh well he can't like go with the the mistresses because they're gonna know that his dick looks different. Yeah, yeah, and then it becomes extremely drawn out where the end is like well we can't do that because like we know that they'll <laughs> recognize that he's different so. Just like we're saying that he's injured so he can't ride his horse. He's injured so he can't... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that is exactly the experience of watching Kagemusha, where, like, a dozen (coughs) times over this three-hour movie, you and I are like, this is what's going to happen next. Yeah. And then 15 minutes later of men very somberly being like, hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. Debating what might be able to, like, what could the next step be? They just arrive at what we always knew. Yeah. (laughs) The only next step they ever could have arrived at. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And part of the, like, the humor in watching it, like, part of what we are laughing at 
is the fact that there's like extended debates between characters about like what should we do uh-huh. when like everybody's just like aware what's yeah. gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, they all know. <laughs> yeah, but they all like feel the need to like debate with each other about it. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's all <laughs> in some ways it's kind of like one of those like nesting dolls of like there's a lot of individual moments of that in the like ultimate big moment of you know from the outside the very first scene is like oh we found a double to play the to play the shogun um and so you know at the very start that the the double is going to pre- have to pretend to be the shogun and it's going to end up with everybody here dead yeah <laughs> And every little step along the way is another miniature version of, like, he's going to have to pretend and it's going to get fucked up somehow. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing that I was struck by, which is also tying into what we're talking about right now, which is, like, basically this first shot of the movie is um, there's the, the Shogun, Shingen, mm-hmm. in the, like, middle on, like, sort of the, you know elevated platform yes you know the like equivalent of throne essentially yes um next to him is his his brother who also acts as a double yes and looks very similar and it's far enough away that it's like kind of hard to tell the difference yes because they're all wearing the same outfit and then probably doing a composite shot for this yes there is the same actor who's the double who's going to be the main character of the film Mm -hmm. um more towards the front with a candle next to him. And I looked at it and I was like, oh yeah, sure or no. Like, this is like a no play and it's about a samurai. So this would be like a sure or no, mm-hmm. which is a, a form of no play where, so like no play, like even has like particulars of like where people will sit and that like Shingen is being placed in the position of like what would be the main character and the, the, um, you know, double who's the the actual main character of the movie in the end is being placed in like the position of the foil. Um, although we can, we can, I think this, like this framing is important for how I also read some of stuff that happens at the end. But, and then I'm just like, Oh yeah. So this is like a no. And it's probably like an assure no. And then it literally ends with how all assure no end, which is like the, the whole thing of an assure no, it's called that because it's named after the Buddhist afterlife. And it is the samurai has died goes to the afterlife and is being judged. Mm-hmm. And so the main character who's the samurai, who in this case we're seeing the shogun mm-hmm. in this framing, you already know he's going to die. Yes. Because it's re- referencing a form of play where the main character is a samurai who is dead. Yes. <laughs> and so he's sitting there and then he's going to be judged. And then the climax of it is we see a reenactment of the battle in which he died. Yes. Like, they go through all the, like, stuff that he did in life as they're judging him, and it ends with the moment that he died. Which then ties into the end is the big battle mm-hmm. that happens because of all the stuff that happens, including the double was actually doing, like, a decent job of fulfilling the wishes of the Shogun, including being, like, saying, like, no, we should, like the mountain doesn't move. Like we stay here. The army mm-hmm. comes to us. Yes. Right. Which would have been the like more secure position. Yes. But once the jig is up. Yeah. Once he rides the horse, falls off the horse, gets injured. The, the mistresses, mistresses come to tend to him and are like, wait, it's not him. Cause they recognize yeah. that he like, doesn't have the scar, you know, scars that they remember. And yeah. stuff. Um, all of this happens. The jigs up, they do the funeral, the son, 
Mm. has to then take over and the son is like, no, I'm going to do my own thing, which is I'm going to go right out and and confront. Um, And that's the big battle. And then full, this is just a no play. Um, The... The double... The double, wearing, like, death mask makeup... Yes. ...is, like, running around the battlefield while this battle is happening, being, like, frantic, and at the very end, like, after everyone else has died, grabs the spear and... Yeah. And... Like, just desperately grabs a spear, starts running at an enemy line, and they just shoot him from, like, 50 yeah. yards. Um, And so, part of it, too, is, like, I think one of the things that that's coming in and like being played with here is that like to some degree he is like in some ways he just becomes the man mm-hmm. um he's played by the same actor if we're doing the no play having him in the position of the main character being like the actual shogun if then there's the reenactment it almost implies that that double just becomes the shogun that like right you know that's like what's happening here um and it being this en- enactment of his death, which is both, like, the death of the Shogun and, like, his desires, as well as, like, then the final death of this character. So, like, a lot of it was, like, interesting, and especially thinking it from, like, this no-play perspective, for me, w- was interesting. <laughs> uh, it's like, Ashura knows also extremely on my mind right now, because on Ghost Divers, people are not going to hear these episodes until, like, April, mm-hmm. but... <laughs> We are, Connor and I are about to finish recording our second gig episodes. Mm-hmm. And I think thinking about no play is like one of the few things where I can get interesting stuff out of second gig, which mm-hmm. in general, I'm not super hot on. Yeah. Um. But anyway, yeah, I, it was a thing that I super enjoyed with, with this movie is like also how it was playing yeah. with these, these play forms. And yeah, there's also the moment where they just watch a no play and I'm like, oh. Yeah, they literally yeah. just watch a no... It, it, it um... <laughs> I mentioned on the last episode, or maybe the one before it, where I had watched Amadeus, like, oh, there's this director's cut that's 20 minutes longer, and if I had to take a guess, I would say that the theatrical probably cuts the, like, lengthy... There are lengthy, lengthy sequences in Amadeus where they're just showing you operas. They're just showing you that the operas that Salieri and Mozart were writing. Um, And similarly, there is like a sequence where um, if he was not Akira Kurosawa in 1980, if anybody on planet Earth could have told him you can cut this, someone would have told him you can cut this like lengthy sequence of just people watching a no play. But he's Akira Kurosawa. It's 1980. You're not going to tell him fucking anything. (laughs) And so you just watch a no play for five minutes and it's just like, okay, yeah. Like that is just telling you this is what the movie is in the same way that like the opera scenes in Amadeus are like, this is what the movie is. We're just doing a version of that. Yeah. But that's still great. You see it and you're like, yeah, 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 it works. It really lands. Um, The, um... I had a thought branching out from what you said, and then I also had a big pivot thing. I cannot remember what the tangent I had was. Not tangent, but the other big thing that we've kind of talked about a little bit is that um, this is a movie that you can only make if you are a maniac perfectionist with $30 million. Yeah. (laughs) Um. But so this is the thing. I was watching it and I was like, how much money... 
did he get for this? Uh-huh. And I I did the conversion and I don't remember exactly the the number that I landed at, but it was around yeah. like 30, you know, 28 to 30 million dollars. Yeah. And what I did is I I specifically did the inflation for yen mm. uh from like when it was like 1980 to now and then did the conversion from that to like US money just to like yeah. kind of frame it that way. Um understand it that way for me. Um there might be other like ways to do this conversion, but it's like yeah, thirty million dollars, and that's that's a lot of money. It's a little expensive movie, and a lot of that money goes towards props and costumes, and you know some pay for warm bodies. Yeah, thousand <laughs> and horses. So many horses. Kurosawa loves horses. This is one of the things where I'm like, normally if I was like, oh yeah, this director he also did a documentary about horses for TV, I'd be like. I'm just going to skip it. But, like, Kurosawa loves horses. There are so many horses in this movie. I want to see him do an entire movie about horses. That reminded me of the little, like, shooting off from something you had said. A little interesting layer to this movie that I don't have a lot to build on necessarily is I think it's so interesting the way um, all the men he can fool. He can fool Nobunaga. He can fool... Like the people in um the war council or or you know like the lieutenants and the soldiers and he can fool all the yeah. men into thinking even that- the guards who are in on it and knew him yeah. and are like meant to coach him and yes. to be around to be like if he's not sure he can be quiet and maybe the like guard will say something or whatever to like help guide him mm-hmm. you know there are like all these people who who knew Shingen. Mm -hmm. And are, like, in on this secret and are supposed to help. Towards the end, they're like, you know, there are moments where I think it's just him. Yes. Like, I forget. I think it's just Shingen again. He can fool all of them. He meets the grandson. He cannot fool a child. That child immediately from... from (laughs) In a room full of tons of people goes, that's not my grandfather. (laughs) And then they're all like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And then, like... Cannot fool the horse. He gets on the horse, horse throws him off. Yeah. The, the women, like, see him and are like, you're not the Shogun, are you? Like, yeah. you're not. And he's like, oh, no, 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 trust me, I'm definitely him, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, he and makes a like, joke about, like, oh, yeah, I'm just the imposter. And then, like, like almost making a big joke of, like, yes. the truth is what finally kind of sways them. Yes. They're like, oh, you're not really an imposter. An imposter would never say that, ha, ha, ha. Yeah. We must have been silly. But then later they see he gets thrown off the horse and they see like, you know, his his robe gets like jostled and they're like, Oh, he had a his we can see his shoulder. There's a scar on his shoulder that's not there anymore. He can't fool the women. He can't fool the the children. He can't fool the horse. All he can fool are these self important men who just see who don't really see Shingen the man just to like see him as, you know, the piece on the chessboard of yeah. like, we're going to unite Japan under our banner, you know? Yeah. Um, one of the other things that I, I think is interesting really to that too was, so first the, the grandson is just like, you're not my grandfather, mm-hmm. but then they like talk and like, we, you know, we get like extended scenes of um, the double and then the grandson, like, basically bonding Mm -hmm. and then at the end it's revealed but then the grandson is still like Mm -hmm. no like what's going on in this way where like i think what's happening there is less that like he is fooled that that grandson and more that that grandson is just like no like 
I have a new you, grandpa. Yeah, you're just my grandpa now. <laughs> like I'm I'm still like aware that like something happened here, but like almost in some ways, like perhaps he's like being a better grandpa yeah. than his like actual grandpa was, and he's just yeah. like, Yeah, you like I you know. And so the ha- most heartbreaking scene in this is the one where like one, like all the men just like once the jig goes up, they're like, We have no use for you. They're just like throwing rocks at this old man uh-huh. and stuff, being like, just get out of here. Um, and then there's the part during the funeral mm. and he's like watching with all the commoners from afar. And when he sees the, the grandson, it gets like extremely emotional being like, yeah. yeah. Um, having had this like genuine connection with this kid. Yeah. Um, it's definitely for me, the saddest, seeing a bunch of people mowed down, not as sad as that. For not me. as sad as seeing an old man be sad. <laughs> not all the dead men and horses, nothing on nothing. Nothing compared to old guy gets sad. <laughs> yeah. Old guy gets sad about little kid who's sad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, God, that's a great. Oh, so the other thing going off of what we were talking about with the budget, this is the other thing when I was looking it up is then I then looked up what are budgets of like Marvel movies now. <sighs> and I just wanted like, this is another part of why I'm so like, I rag on stuff is like, if you're spending like 10 times the amount of money that was spent on Kage Musha uh-huh. and it looks like shit, <laughs> what the fuck are you doing with that money? What the fuck are you doing with that money? I don't, why would you, why would you spend more money animating bad CG armies running at each other when you could just get a thousand guys and have them run? I don't understand. <laughs> I am always thinking about how, um, <laughs> you know, Kurosawa could like put thousands of men in real ass like samurai gear, you yeah. know, or at least convincing samurai gear. I don't know, you know, that's probably all like yeah. very nice plastic or something. I don't know. Anyway, the, neither here nor there. Um, meanwhile, when they were shooting the Mandalorian, they had to call a bunch of cosplayers to come be in it because <laughs> Disney apparently didn't want to shell out for more stormtrooper costumes. <laughs> Eat shit. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> but, but the other thing about it is not just that there's like a million dudes on screen. It's that like, you know, this is a very laughable thing to say, but like, like Kurosawa is like composing every frame in a very painterly way. Yeah. He's like, I he's, want, he's known for this. Yes. He's like, I want you to stand here and I want you to look at this. I don't want you to look above this. I don't want you to look below this. I want your eyes here. Like, yeah, I want you wearing this. No, that's not right. The right shade of blue, you know? Yeah. Um, and there's just like, the, the the moments where it really comes through that he's just a perfectionist weirdo asshole <laughs> is there's like these incredible moments. Like the one that I think about is someone hears um not that Shingen is dead, but that Shingen is wounded and he's like, Oh, a, you know, a great rival of mine has fallen. He must be dead, you know. Um like I'm going to mourn this like, you know, 
valiant warlord who really gave me trouble, you know, even though we were enemies, like he was a brave soldier anyway. And he like, there's this beautiful shot of this man in like his palace or whatever. And then he walks over to a window and props it open. And there is a different beautiful <laughs> shot of the snow coming down outside the palace. And there was a, secretly within this beautiful painterly shot was a different beautiful painterly <laughs> yeah. shot that they would have had to compose separately and then would have had to move everything so precisely to get from one to the next. Yeah. And it's just like, you can only do that if you're like, this is what we're doing today. We're spending an entire day of shooting lighting this. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck you. It's 30 seconds of the movie. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> yeah. This happened in like multiple different, like one, there's just multiple times where people open windows and now there's just like another shot within mm -hmm. that window but there are also moments where you like see a shot and you're like this is a beautiful painterly shot and then it will cut to zoomed out uh -huh. where that is like oh the like doors in the building are open and we can like see them sitting in there and now we have another differently like different beautiful shot where we have like basically the previous shot like framed within it yeah and we're just like <laughs> <laughs> the man keeps doing it well and and the other thing I'm sure he was a nightmare to work with. Oh, my God. <laughs> no wonder Mifune was like, no, I'm yeah, done. <laughs> this is the other thing that I want to say. Yeah. Which is um, the actor that he got playing Shingen, it, like, really feels like Kurosawa was like, man, I kind of miss Mifune. I'm, I'm kind of sorry that I fucked things up with him. I really wish he was in this role. But I'm too Can proud. You, yeah. <laughs> it's, like, one of those things where it's it's been... There's 15 years between Redbeard and this movie. And, like, you almost wonder, is it, like, is it that Mifune wouldn't pick up his calls? Or is it that Kurosawa is, like, too proud to call him? Yeah. You know? But he wants Mifune back so bad. I think the guy who plays the double and Shingen <coughs> is really, really good. I think he does exceptionally well in this role. But you can tell that Kurosawa wants Mifune back. <laughs> yeah. Even just, like, the way that his hair is styled, like, you kind of just feel like... Kurosawa was like in there like with the stylist being like can you can you do it this way and the stylist being like yeah you you want to do the the haircut that we gave to Mifune nope don't say his name do but I think I think you're on the right track <laughs> this is extremely the vibe of this movie but the other thing I was gonna say was just that like the other thing that you have to remember is that like you know for 30 40 years like like Kurosawa has always done this, like, perfectly composed shots thing. Like, I've watched Throne of Blood, like, four times, I think. I'm just, like, always so impressed by it. But it is one thing to do that in black and white. Not that it's easy, but it is one thing. He did it in black and white for so long that he, like, perfected. Like, no black and white movies, no movies look as good as Kurosawa in black and white. And then he just... Like, I think, I don't think this is his first color movie, but to, yeah. like, show up in color and just be so fully formed, like, the full, just, like, majesty of, like, he also can compose in color better than anyone else has ever composed in anything. <laughs> just like, fuck you, dude. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, I'm sure that's not, e like, I, that's just another layer of, like, now it doesn't have to be lit perfectly for black and, black and white, but now it's, like, 
no, 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 that's not the right white for the floor of this room. I need the correct white. That's not historically accurate or whatever the fuck yeah. it is that his problem is today. <laughs> you know? Um, I mean, a lot of this too is like he has good choreographers that he's working with. Yes. Or yes. good cinematographers that he's working with. Um, but also like you can just tell that he's a man who's like, one, he had a small handful of cinematographers that he just used over and over again. Um, and also if you watch like... A lot of the cinematographers he's working with are very good, and if you watch other movies that they've done that aren't Kurosawa, they look good. Mm-hmm. But also together, it's just like, you can tell that Kurosawa is also bringing something. Yes. Isn't um, he his own editor on a lot of this stuff? Um, He might be. He, Kuros- again, Kurosawa just seems like a nightmare man to work with. <laughs> like, um, let me just open up this uh, Wikipedia related to something we were talking about earlier that... Mm-hmm. Are we announcing that at all? No, I just didn't want to. Sp- I didn't want to spoil a specific thing. We can. Okay. We have talked about that. We are going to podcast about that. I just didn't want to spoil that. That's all. Yeah. Um. But yes, it, it said. Uh, um. Edited by Akira Kurosawa, uncredited. Um, yeah. I I think maybe not on every movie, but I think on a lot of his movies, he's the editor. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, he's involved, like, he's usually not listed as cinematographer, but still, like, when people talk about working with him and stuff, like, he, he was the kind of person who was, like, involved with every yeah step in mm-hmm. a way that, again, <laughs> I'm sure it would be awful to work with. <laughs> I feel like if I knew Kurosawa in person, I would fucking hate him. Do you hear the stories about- But I love that guy. You hear the stories about Herzog and um, Klaus Kinski like pointing guns at each other on set, and you're like, "Yeah, I understand how the Mifune relationship blows up." If you're yeah. like, <laughs> if you're just <laughs> in some ways, the Klaus Kinski and Werner Herzog relationship is very similar, I think, to the Mifune and Kurosawa relationship. Yeah, um, Mifune doesn't sound as um destructive slash self-destructive as as Kinski does, but he does sound like a, you know, by descriptions, he's like a person with a lot of energy. Yeah. <laughs> Very vibrant um, person. I have, a, I have a book. I think it's called The Emperor and the Wolf or something, uh-huh. but it's like a lengthy book that's specifically about, like, their relationship, and I've just never read it, and I mm. should. That sounds interesting. It's just, honestly, part of it is just the, the length of it uh-huh. being like, I mean, I've, I've read Wikipedia articles and stuff, like, <laughs> but I should, I should, I should read it at some point. Um, um, it's like the largest book that I have about Kurosawa, <laughs> <laughs> which honestly kind of feels appropriate. Yeah. Um, but, um, this movie is so good. God, I love this movie. This movie's so good. The thing is, I still feel slightly sad that I've like watched all these films, but also if I had watched it, like back when I was watching everything, I think I would have felt a lot sadder because now I'm like, man, I don't remember anything about I Live in Fear or like The Idiot or like there are movies that I remember. Mm-hmm. There are movies that I've seen many times, I've seen Ikaru so many times. Um, but yeah, there are other ones that I watched once, like even like Dursa Uzala, which I like have more memories of because it's a little bit more distinctive. Um as it, like, being about, like, this Russian guy and everything. I'm still, like, there's so much of that I don't remember. Mm-hmm. So. This is the first one of his films in color that I've seen. Yeah. 
Manson. We got to watch Dreams at some point. We got to. We got to. Um, the, the, the dream sequence in this movie is just like knocked me on my ass. Yeah. Um, the colors are just wild. And yet, like one is like, so I'd seen those shots and I was kind of, I've seen him do other movies that are not as extreme. Dreams ventures a little bit more into this territory uh, more often. But I'd, I, so often when people talk about Kagemusha, you see shots from that scene, mm-hmm. which is a fairly short scene, actually. Yes. In a movie full of very long scenes. Yes. Um, And I just thought that the movie was going to more often be this like extreme color palette. Yes. Um, and I was, I was kind of impressed by like, it really is contained with this like very short dream sequence that at once feels like kind of jarring in, in how like sudden and different it is. And yet also like not so much that it just feels out of place, you know? Yeah. Um, it's like just enough like extreme compared to everything else that it gives you that jarring sensation, but without you being like, what the fuck was that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. It still feels of a part of like yeah. all the rest of it. Um, there's still the deep intention. Fucking perfectionist nightmare, man. I love him so much. He's in my pantheon of guys. <laughs> Do you want to write the stairwell? I think the main one is the one with the messenger at the very beginning. Yeah. Just running past, Tons and tons of guys. Yes. Guys in different um, colored costumes, guys in, you know, there was a bunch of guys in red costumes that I thought were dead for a second. They're just chilling. Yeah. Um, when we were seeing that scene, it was at the very beginning of the movie. I was just like, oh, this is going to be an S rank stairwell movie. Uh-huh. Um, there were other stairs and they weren't utilized as much. And so I'm kind of thinking about an A plus. Uh, that's where I was at too. Yeah. Like okay. that scene's really good. There's another scene that is on stairs. There's a scene where um, it's so funny. There's like two or three like guys in these like beautiful like you know like true you know <clears throat> these beautiful like robes and stuff. That's what I was looking for robes. Yeah. Um, and then there's like one soldier guy who's like they're standing on some stairs and he's like okay. So I was at this window in the fortifications and I had my gun like this. And I shot like this. And this is like a five, ten minute sequence of like, how'd you shoot? I had my gun positioned here. Exactly like that. What were you aiming at? I was aiming at this. You were aiming at that? Yes, that's what I was aiming at. Um, And these like guys like want to perfectly reconstruct how this man shot Shingen. Um, Including they have him actually fire a bullet without warning any of the people out there that that's going to happen. <laughs> and everything just goes into chaos. And he's like, yeah, and when I did it, everything went into chaos like that. <laughs> and then really they good. like they talk for a little bit. And then like the chaos is still happening. And he's like, send someone out there to be like, it's fine. It was just us. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but yeah. also the length of time before he does that is great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Again, this movie is so much funnier than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. That's all on stairs, but no one's really walking or up or down the stairs. So yeah. I, I feel A plus is appropriate. Um, one, I, I pulled up the cast here because I want to just shout out Nakadai Tatsuya, who does the mm-hmm. the main character. Yeah. Um, again, does a phenomenal job, even as it's clear that Kurosawa seemed like he wanted me for an A. Um, the other thing I want to say is... Um, Part of the sadness that I was feeling watching this was also like 
or it was like slightly intensified as this being like this is the last Kurosawa movie that I'm watching, compounded with the knowledge that this is the last time that Shimura Takashi appeared in a Kurosawa film. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Oh. So it like felt like fittingly sad for me. He's like not in this movie a ton, but I was yeah. so happy to see him here. Yeah, he gets like a, a small part. Yeah. Um, he's getting up there in the in years by the time this comes out. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's 75 yeah. when this movie comes out. He passed two years later. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I love him. So I've referenced Pantheon of Guys. Uh, mm. Kurosawa, Mifune, and Shimura are all in my Pantheon of Guys. <laughs> which just shows how much I love Kurosawa movies. Yeah. <laughs> um, all for different reasons. Uh-huh. But, yeah. Related, but different. Um, Even he's just the hottest man to ever exist. <laughs> I mean, like, I think Lawrence Fishburne might be the hottest man to have ever existed, but like, Mifune top two. It's like it, okay, it's it's Fishburne, Orson I mean, Welles, and Mifune. Yeah, are like the three hottest men that have ever existed, and like it's just kind of like I watched a Lawrence Fishburne movie today, so of course I think he's the hottest man who's ever existed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, some of it is recency. Um, um, anyway. If I could have one person narrate my life in my head, it would be Lawrence Fishburne. <laughs> we are at two hours and 22 minutes in this podcast. Do you want to talk about... She's got to have it. such a long episode we have to do questions after this here's the thing she's gotta have it as a great movie yeah she's gotta have it as a very good movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> um it's extremely uh you can tell this is his first movie yes movie I think it's like pretty light even on like stuff I wanna talk about I'm not saying there's nothing yeah but I think we were gonna end up running shorter on this than we ran on everything else you know yeah. Uh, I mean, there's some stuff that we probably covered shorter than we're going to cover this. Yeah. But it, again, I think part of it is that this is just a lighter movie. Yeah. So, um, She's Gotta Have It, 1984 film directed by Spike Lee. It is his debut feature film. Um, it, it is shot in black and white, which I think is important um, just for talking about, like, I think it exists in conversation with a lot of, like, 90s debut feature films you know they're all yeah. also shot in black and white like i i thought about slacker a bit watching this i think Sl stalker not stalker slacker is in black and white right i think so anyway there is a, a color segment in yes this film which i vaguely remembered yes um but to such a degree where i was really unsure i was like i'm pretty sure it's in black and white and there's maybe color but i don't know but yeah 
Anyway, um, oh, she's got to have it as 1986. My apologies. Um, did I I write it the wrong way in here? I don't know. Wait. I don't think I read it on the spreadsheet. I just... 1986. I just had it in my head as 84. Um. Yeah, you have it right in the spreadsheet. Anyway, um, 1986, um, here's the plot summary. Um, Nola Darling, um, is a woman who expresses any sort of sexual freedom and independence and desire for herself, and three men spend the next 80 minutes losing their shit. Yeah. Plot summary over. And, um, one lesbian is kind of sadly in love with a straight girl. Yeah. And honestly seems like the best person for her, but she's straight. She's tragically straight. Tragically straight. Um, I'm not going to say that... In being smitten with a straight girl, the one lesbian isn't sometimes a little like you could be a better like her. Mm. Her ex roommate is definitely the best friend to her in this. Yes, but um, but still, I, the lesbian is far less just shitty about who she is as a person than all of the men are. I think this movie does a really good job of exploring Nola, darling. Um, I think this jo- movie does a really good job of exploring this sort of, like, three men who are, like, at war with each other over Nola's affections. But um, as far as, like, what actually happens is that, like, this this woman sort of, like, expresses desire that does not fit in with, like, what these men want. And these men want to possess her as an object. Um yeah. And it is sort of, like, exploring, like, these three men kind of treat her like shit because of that. <laughs> yeah. What I, what I, the thing that I find interesting about this film is, so, like, uh, there's the three guys. Let me, like, double check on the, the names just to make sure that I, um, yeah. So, Greer mm-hmm. is the one that I understand the least. It is, it is... Highly suggested. Yeah, the dick is good, and that's basically all that's good about this man. Um, He's the like dog shit worst person in this Mm -hmm. movie, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, He's just, and also like, it is stated that the dick is good, but also you have to wait for him to very carefully (laughs) and methodically fold every article of clothing that he has, and like you know sort it and put it in different places before you get the dick. Which is just a level of uh, patience for that dick that I'm surprised she has. <laughs> I feel like there'd be a point where I'd be like, just start putting those clothes back on, man. <laughs> like, part of the hotness of the dick might be like being so smitten with me that you've got like your pants still around your, like, an ankle or something. Uh-huh. Like, you like can't fully get the clothes off because uh-huh. you're just so eager. <laughs> Um, no, this man folds no. his clothes before he fucks. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, again, is too big of a mood killer for me personally. <laughs> I'm surprised that it worked for Nola still. I mean, it's it's, it's shown that she's bored. But um, then uh, Mars, who's played by Spike Lee and is mm. basically just Spike Lee. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely, like, hamming himself up a little bit. Uh-huh. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> it's, this is so funny. He puts on, um, at some point, he puts on, like, a Knicks, like, beanie with a little puff ball on top. And I joked, <laughs> Ethan, you didn't take that hat off for the next 30 years. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Yeah, the thing is, so when I first watched Spike Lee, it was when I was fairly young, um, and I didn't watch like all of the the films that he had made at that time, but this was one of them, and I think when I saw this, I just thought that he was like really playing like a character wearing a costume, mm-hmm. so I didn't seem like a lot of photos of the guy. <laughs> He's been wearing those same glasses since 1986. Here's the picture of him from the 2018 (laughs) Cannes Film Festival that's on Wikipedia. Um, And not too dissimilar from Mars in this movie. Um, (laughs) My my actual favorite um, is that uh, last year, maybe two years ago now, but I think it was last year... um, how familiar are you? How familiar are you with the New York Knickerbockers? You know that I don't pay attention to do sports, you, really. Do you know the name James Dolan at all? Vaguely. So James Dolan owns Madison Square Garden, and thereby the New York Knicks, um, for some bizarre reason that somehow owning the arena also gets you the garden, or also gets you the team. Anyway, James Dolan. Famous asshole. No one likes him. Um, Spike Lee, season ticket holder since whenever he had enough money to be a season ticket holder for the New York Knicks. You know, sits courtside. Sits courtside at almost every single home game for ever at this point. You know, since Pat Ewing was playing. Um, Anyway, um, so, so Spike Lee... Like, got in a big, like, public argument with James Dolan last year, a year or two ago. Uh, specifics aren't important. James James Dolan is a racist piece of shit and an asshole. Um, and so Spike Lee showed up on TV, clearly on, on national television, like, making some appearance, because it's in the pandemic, like, talking into his phone... Um, and like, it's like a really shitty phone for some reason. <laughs> and he's now wearing headphones so you could hear Stephen A. Smith's voice echoing a little bit on the yeah. phone. It's so fucking funny. And it is exactly Mars. It is yeah. Mars <laughs> in this film. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's, he's kind of the funny one. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a little bit like... In his, like, jokiness, he's sometimes kind of, like, shitty and sexist and stuff. Yes. Um, but, like, that's, like, clearly what he's bringing. Uh-huh. He's like, like, oh, haha, I'm being sexist as a joke, haha. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. And then the, this is the part, this is the biggest strength to the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, which is the character of Jamie, who's kind of set up, like, he does this thing about, like, oh, true love, you know. Everyone has a soulmate, um, and I, like, I fucked it up, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's set up, like, he's sort of the mean, he's, like, the one who's, like, sweet and nice to her, does the big gesture for her birthday that, um, you know, is the, the color sequence in the film. Um, and so in many ways, he's being set up as, like, the nice guy, the sweet guy, the guy who 
in most romantic comedy style movies, you hope is the one who gets the girl and at the end gets the girl, despite his foibles and his like mistakes that he makes. Uh, and we get the moment where she like wants to talk to him and goes, finds him on the park bench where he sits all the time. Cause he's like the oldest man <laughs> in this movie, just like spiritually, not yeah. like age wise. He's just... still like twenties, like yeah. the rest of them, but he just feels old. Yeah. He's just got some old man energy in the way that nice boys sometimes do. Um, and, you know, there's a moment where, like, she's walking away and then goes back to him. Um, and then we get the thing at the end where she's like, no, I, like, briefly considered, you know. Settling being, down. Settling down with him and everything, but that's not who I am. Yeah. Um, and the part that I think is the strength of this movie is the fact that it, like, it recognizes the, like, shitty possessiveness that also exists in, like, the nice guy. Yes. Yes. Thing. And and he like, and I think that there's been discourse around the like quote unquote nice guy since this movie, mm-hmm. where this is like a a less like impressive stance to be taking because this is just yeah a thing that like Twitter talks about all the time. Um, but I do think like especially for when this movie came out, it's like an interesting point that it's making is like no, he's also just as shitty and possessive as these other two guys are. The, the, yeah, in the, in that way, I think the um, the sexual politics of this are like less fraught than I thought they were going to be. From you know, like a twenty year old guy writing and directing a movie about you know this yeah. this woman who like won't love him back or whatever. Um, uh, I was expecting like I was expecting this movie to be full on like no, she is a possession and she should be my possession. And, like, I think this movie, like, you know, does a pretty good job, uh, you know, of not being that. It definitely involves, like, the the path to that is, like, let's watch for 80 minutes as three different men are sexist in different ways toward this yeah. woman. <laughs> let's see a scene that's totally necessary where Spike Lee gets to suck on her titty. <laughs> No, um, and they they overcrank it so you can watch it in slow motion. It's very important that Spike gets to suck this titty. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, Spike constantly writing sex scenes for himself in the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing, so I was saying this when we were watching it, which we'll we'll get into a question that we'll talk like ask a little bit more broadly about Spike Lee. Um, but like, there's a period where I just really fell off of watching films, which means I haven't seen a lot of more recent Spike Lee films, which means that in my memory, because a lot of the last ones, like the last time that I really watched Spike Lee movies was like when I was an undergrad watching a shit ton of movies. Um, and then one of the things at the university of Chicago is like, my thesis was about Icelandic films. So I was watching Icelandic films Mm -hmm. and then, uh, university of Chicago kind of races place. Um, don't know if you know this about it. It did buy a ton of property in the Hyde Park neighborhood to prevent black people from moving there historically for a really long time. Um, and doesn't really address this history very often. Some professors will talk about it, but mm-hmm. the university doesn't really address this history of like, yeah, really trying to keep black people out yeah. of Hyde Park and specifically like having parks built that like create natural boundaries mm-hmm. and things. Anyway, um, 
I'm kind of at this point just like, even though I went there, fuck University of Chicago. Uh-huh. Um, and it also means that despite the fact that I also watched a lot of movies in grad school, watched a lot less black movies in grad school than I did in undergrad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it also like, you know, there's only like one that I can think of, which is a, um, it's Killer of Sheep, which is a great movie, but I'd also watch an undergrad. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was just like, after that, I, I got so burnt out on movies that I just wasn't watching movies mm-hmm. that I like haven't watched Spike Lee since yeah. undergrad. Yeah. Um, and I'm excited to watch again. Like I'm going to try and watch some of his new movies that I've missed. Yeah. Um, but the whole point of the story is that in my head, a lot of the ones that I especially watched in like high school were ones where it was me and my brother and we were watching like clerks and, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a Spike Lee movie. I was going to say Stalker. And you've like... Slacker. Put, slacker. You've like put it in my head and then it just like <laughs> ruined the actual name. Um, you know, this is like when I watched pretty much any like El Morita movie that I've seen. Mm-hmm. I have not watched El Morita, aside from Nadja, which I think I watched back then. Yeah. I have not watched an El Morita movie. And we... It, 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 that was a very like, bad watching experience of Nadja. You're, you're not watching these as like like black films but as like the 80s 90s independent cinema boom yes you know this is also in my head like i also put spike lee with like tarantino yeah right yeah of like yeah it's like all that kind of thing and that's just like the space that he's occupied in a way where um in the way that i sometimes forget that tarantino continued past like kill bill uh-huh. Part of my brain, like, kind of just forgets that, like, a lot of these people kept making movies. Yeah. Um, because it was just, like, part of, like, that era to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I want to watch some more of his stuff. I was, it was nice going back and watching this. Yeah. And, uh, I had a really good I kind of remembered what it was, but I almost believed the fake out, too, that she was just going to end up with him. I was like, did it, is that how it ended? That's, I was a little like, oh, I don't, this movie doesn't end like this. This is bad. Yeah. I was so relieved when it's like, no. Um, but yeah, I just like, I had a really good time with this. I think like, you know, um, it's, it. I don't know. It's kind of like hard to get into in some ways because it's just like, you know, for a, um, for such an early movie, like, Spike has this, like, such a clear voice um, that, like, shines through in this way. But also, because it is such an early movie, like, he is clearly just, like, eating up, like, every, like, French New Wave and and um, New Hollywood cinema and, um, you You're know, about there's some Woody Allen in there's here. There's some Woody Allen in here that, like... Especially in 1986, you can't really fault Spike for just being like, I like Annie Hall movies. You, or Woody Allen movies. Yeah. <laughs> Annie Hall in particular was the one that like, yeah. was the grab here. Yeah. Um, I mean, li- like literally Manhattan, I think, is the is another one here. Um, because Manhattan is a like literal black and white movie that is like, you know, all these like sort of things that this movie gestures at sometimes of like, look at the beautiful architecture of New York city, you know, yeah. and this New York skyline, um, Manhattan, yeah, also a... a movie about being a 30 year old wanting to fuck a 17 year old. And why is everybody so mad at me for wanting to fuck a 17 year old? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, the, I was about to say, you were going to the bathroom because we were going to record, but I was watching the end of the credits. Uh-huh. Um, and there's a thing that specifically says in there that every single thing was shot in a neighborhood of Brooklyn. And yeah. I was just like, it's such a Spike Lee thing to be like, Brooklyn made at the end of his movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's, it's it's sweet. It's endearing. It is fun to see like a guy who is like such a cultural fixture. I have not seen a ton of Spike Lee movies, but like Spike Lee is this sort of like fixed point in culture in my mind. And it is so fun to see him sort of like emerge in this movie fully formed. There's yeah. no like finding himself in this movie. This there, is there's like a polishing and perfecting, but yes. like it's all here. Yes. Stuff is a little bit more stilted, like there's a lot of non professional actors in this, yes. things like that. Um but yeah, it's still just so extremely And that was the other thing I was saying is that like some of those other movies, especially Clerks, which mm. is the only, um, I'm tired. What? Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith. Uh, my two favorite things that Kevin Smith has done, the only two things that I've liked that Kevin Smith has done is, uh, one, Clerks, and two, that tweet about poning his <laughs> Poning his dick. His wife did yeah. that tweet, actually. Yeah. Actually, guys, my yeah. wife did that tweet, please. <laughs> My wife did that. <laughs> anyway. Well, she does better work. Oh, Jim Jarmusch, which I just saw here saying. Uh, oh, yeah. Here. I also associate Jim Jarmusch with this. Yeah. I haven't. Coffee and cigarettes is the only Jim Jarmusch I've seen. Yeah. Um, but like the the like cinematography in this mm. is there's some stuff where it's like a little bit like, oh, this is your first film. And mm-hmm. there's some stuff that you would probably like frame up or light better if you like had more resources and more experience but like it's it's good yeah it's good you know um bill way better than clerks way better than clerks (laughs) low bar but it is really good um Um, bill lee better than like almerita like it's better than nadja oh yeah oh yeah which is a movie where you wanted to be good because it's about vampires (laughs) (laughs) bill lee um spike's dad does the soundtrack to this movie and it's like very like jazzy in a way that like is kind of funny because um just three years later like in 1989 spike goes like full hip-hop soundtrack you know like goes to like the sound of the youth of 1989 because he is the youth of 1989 um but like in this like is going for the music that his dad makes and listens to um, in a really interesting way, but like fits this movie really well as it's about, you know, this sort of like, like, you know, this jazz being this music about like freedom and expression and like the literal conflict of the movie being that like um, Nola literally just wants to express herself even once and men cannot tolerate it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, one other thing, this is what I was really getting at with all the cinematography, is, and my talk about, like, me associating it with some of this other independent stuff that's happening here, is how clear that it is they were, like, aware of how to shoot for black and white. Yes. Which, again, yes. is a, a big issue that, like, I thought of this when I mentioned Nadja, because it comes up with Nadja. It's, ex- it's all over Clerks, is, like, 
a lot of stuff from this era I associate with they're shooting it as if they're shooting it for color and not for black and white. And it means that it just everything looks kind of dull and lifeless mm-hmm. because you're not like shooting in the ways where you're getting like the rich like blacks and whites. Yes. Um, and this is shot in a way where you get that. Yeah. It's one of the things that was impressive to me just because I kind of remember that this was in black and white and I was kind of expecting it being like, oh, that's a film where like I would just wish it was in color. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up watching this and I was like, no, this is, I'm glad this is black and white. This looks good. Well, and, 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 you know, I, I, the black and white color, like the, the, the black and white in this movie looks so good. And then another thing, you know, talking about like Spike comes out in this movie just like fully formed as who he is. The moment, the moment that this movie is in color, you know, at least in this early stuff, there is like a spikely color palette in my mind that is like very like yeah. bright primary colors. The blues in, in the blue of the sky is incredible. Yeah, like in do the right thing. The blues are blue. The yeah. reds are red. You know, there's yeah. no like crimson or teal or or whatever. You know, the, the primary colors and. and so when this m- sequence cuts to color, I'm like, oh my God, Spike Lee is here. This looks like do the right thing. And I thought that, I thought for sure, if there was one thing that was going to need some polish, it was like getting to the color palette that do the right thing has. But no, even that is just here and cl- yeah. clearly there because they could only afford color in one sequence. Yeah. <laughs> and so they did it for the like kind of dreamy, yeah. musically sequence. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Um it looks incredible. Yeah. Um and, and shout out to it it's also just so fun, you know, um seeing like clearly like Spike's sister is in this movie, Spike's dad is in this movie, like clearly all the people he's working with he like knows somehow, like all the actors and stuff. And so the the other thing about the 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 color sequence that is like this, you know, um um, what's his name? Jamie has these two dancers perform, not like lap dancers, like ballet dancers perform for, um, uh, Nola's birthday. Um, so, so like these two ballet dancers, it feels so much like Spike knew two people who knew how to dance ballet and was like, wouldn't it be cool if they were in my movie? Hey, I'm going to call them and see if they want to be in my yeah. movie. I'm going to make up an excuse. So let's just write an excuse. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I was... Me being like... I kind of remember it was like a little bit of a weird Spike Lee movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I, remember, I remembered it was in black and white. Um, I remember kind of liking it, but also like... When you were like, let's do She's Gotta Have It, because I haven't seen it. I was like, okay, this could kind of go bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I was expecting I, this yeah. to be fraught. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was kind of just surprised at how good this was. Throughout. Yeah. Um, all the places where I was like, oh, this, based on my like hazy recollection, these might be the issues I have with it. Um, the only thing really being that just like the acting is like non-professional is yeah. like. I think I'll Nola it's... Nola is so funny because she's so clearly in some moments like not a professional actress and some moments is like but she's doing really good despite that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> there are some moments where I feel like um and it's not in like things that would be like bad or something. But there are like moments where I think so one of them is there's the cake 
Um, and she goes to blow out the cake and it's a, like one of mm. those like trick candles where you blow on it and then it like relights. Mm. And I don't think that they told her that's what it, I think it was like, okay, and then the cake's going to come over and you're going to blow it out and then mm. it'll be the end of the scene. And so when she realizes that it's a trick candle and starts laughing, it just like seems genuinely like yeah. she's laughing. Yeah. Um, and there are moments where it seems like, uh, Mars is just like making her laugh because like Spike Lee is just being funny and making her laugh. Right. Like yeah. she's not like a lot of the, those moments yeah. just felt the most yeah. genuine where it's yeah. just like, no, there's, they're just like having fun and, and laughing and recording it. That's the nice thing about mm-hmm. like writing yourself into the movie is like, he puts all his like best qualities on display and he's also like self-aware enough not to just make himself the hero of the movie. Like yeah, he kind of like, makes make himself a scumbag. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, um, I was very, I was, I thought I was going to like this movie. I just thought it was going to be like, Ooh, look at all this like bad stuff we have to talk about. Um, and I was very pleasantly surprised by like, just liked this movie in a very sort of like, Pure, un, you know, un, uh, adulterated way, you know, I'm like, yeah. oh, that was just a good movie, you know, yeah. um, uh, I don't know how much more I have to say about it. There's no, there's no specific scene that's jumping out to me as like, oh my gosh, that, you know, um, was the scene that I just need to like dig into, you know? Yeah. Um, so, sorry we talked about Kagemusha longer than she's gotta have it. Sorry that I explained the plot of Deep Cover longer than we talked about she's gotta have it, but, uh, that's what happens sometimes. Sometimes sometimes the movie is just good, and also 84 minutes, so there's not a bunch of scenes to talk about. Yeah. Sometimes the plot isn't convoluted, and you can just say, yeah, it's a woman and the three guys that she... Is dating and yep, yeah. Um, it's a good movie though. If people have not watched it, they should watch it. Stairwells. Oh, the other thing I want to quick say mm-hmm. is um, if people are wanting to watch it and wondering where to watch it, I think this is the first time in many years mm-hmm. that I have been like, I want to watch something. It's not a Netflix original series. But it's on Netflix, so I'm gonna open it up. Um, it's just the I don't know how Netflix became just the dog shit worst streaming service. I don't know either. The thing is it's funny, they wanted to become HBO, I think. Of yeah. like you're paying a premium to get the Netflix content, just like you used to pay a premium to get the HBO content. Now I load up HBO Max and I'm like Oh, there's some HBO stuff, but more importantly, there's a bunch of whole, a whole bunch of different movies on here that I just want to watch, like Deep Cover, because yeah. that's just like a Warner Brothers movie. They own it; they can put it on their own damn streaming service. Um, I actually earlier this week looked into the DVD Blu-ray rental thing through Netflix, and there's a part where I could search through the the catalog, and it's so sad. Is it? Yeah. They've just gotten rid of all that shit. There's a bunch of stuff that's, like, stuff that would never be on streaming, but it's also just, like, it's not, like, the weird stuff that I want. Mm -hmm. It's, like, they are clearly just catering to, like, old people who might still be getting this. Makes sense. Is really the vibe. That makes sense. There's, like, a whole section that just seemed to be, like, some Christian stuff. Okay. 
You know, it's like that vibe. Yeah. It's like, all right. Yeah. And I was just like, man, I was just Googling being like, come on, do you have like Suicide Club? I mean, I've like owned that movie. Mm. Do you have it? Let me Google it. And this is like, no, I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, do you have any weird, like what weird Japanese V cinema can I find? Because this is the thing that like might be a DVD is the kind of thing that probably won't be on streaming, but is weird and just the kind of stuff that I'll want to find. And if you have this, maybe I'll believe that you're going to have other stuff that I'm going to find and will be interesting. But I'm just going to start here because I know so much weird Japanese V cinema that I can just like type in stuff. Nothing. Remember Quickster? Yeah. <laughs> um, I just really want like a nice... Here's just, we buy a bunch of DVDs and Blu-rays and mm. you can rent them. Service again. I just feel like it doesn't exist. Stairwell. Um, I don't think there is really one. Really. There's The cover is going to be like a still at the very beginning that is not significant to the story in any way. There's, um, um... The the opening of this movie is a lengthy quote from Zora Neale Hurston, which I would like to reread now that I've watched the movie and know where it's going. Um, I think I'm going to go out on a limb and say Zora Neale Hurston probably knows more about, like, the intersection of, like, gender and race than Spike Lee does because yeah. uh, she's, like, writing about, like, men are like this and women are like this. And I was a little bit like, this is a very binary way of thinking. Um, but I was also like, well, she's Zora Neale Hurston. Who am I to? (laughs) Honestly, there's a part of me watching this to which I was like, is some of the sexual politics in here coming from like Spike Lee is making this, but making this with people that he knows. And so is like sister and Tracy Camilla Johns is like, Mm -hmm. this, it's gotta be like this. Mm-hmm. Like I'm playing this character, it's got to be like this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, um, not to say that I like don't believe that Spike Lee could also come up with some of this stuff, but there's a certain amount where I was like, to what degree are some of the women involved contributing like, contributing to this plot? Yeah. Um, but but after the Zora Neale Hurston quote, there is like various like really nice stills of like Brooklyn over the years um, uh, that like. I think it's interesting. I think it serves to like put blackness at the forefront of a viewer's mind, um, which maybe is necessary in 1986. But for me, I'm like, yeah, I'm watching a Spike Lee movie. You don't need to tell me this is a movie about black people before the black people show yeah. up because I, I, kn- I know. <laughs> but when this movie came out, having on the, the poster a Spike Lee joint meant nothing yeah. other than... Spike Lee joint. Yeah. He's smoking marijuana in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> he rolled this one up right for me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't recall a single stare other than that yeah. still. I Maybe because of that still, we can give it a D. But um, I, I feel like it's still a, a D minus. Okay. D minus is my... Fair. I saw some stairs. You didn't really do anything with them. You know what? I'll... Yeah. Yeah. Um anyway. Questions. On on a related note. Joao asks, what's the worst stare ever depicted in a movie? 
This is, I mean, worst is such a, a big. That still is nice. I don't think that still has anything to do with the movie, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I'm just like. This is just a, a hard question because it's just like. I feel like if I remember stairs, it's not bad stairs. Yeah. Um, the worst stairs are just like when you're. Oh. You, I, I came over today and you were watching The Virgin Suicides. Um, there were some nice stairs in that movie, but that's a movie about like suburban homes. I feel like the worst stairs in movies are just like when you see a suburban home and it's just like there are some stairs, you know? Yeah. That's what the Midwest is like. Stair houses houses have stairs. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I, the the thing I was thinking maybe is just in terms of like if I. I don't know if this, these are the worst stairs, but this is the part where, like, now that this is a thing that I look for in movies, is when there's a... It's a movie where, like, everything just happens in rooms. And then there's a part where there's, like, you can see, especially going down. This is where it's most disappointing to me. Because you just see, like, the railing. You don't even see the steps. Mm. You see the railing. You see that there are stairs there. And maybe at the end of a scene, someone starts walking towards them, mm-hmm. and then it cuts. You don't even see them going down, even like you can't see it. Like this yeah. is the thing that I yeah. felt like happened sometimes in Laura, where it was just like mm-hmm. there. I can see there are stairs there in yeah. the shot, but also this is like a room that you just built on a set. Right, and those stairs might not even go anywhere. You built the like top of some stairs. Yeah, like people can't even really walk down that. Yeah, yeah. Um, because then I'm just like, it's just not there. <laughs> you were like, you're teasing me that there's going to be stairs and there's no stairs in this movie. Can I take a very different interpretation of the word worst here? Okay. The stairs in the Laura Palmer household. <laughs> the, i.e. the most terrifying stairs. Yeah. <laughs> this is a good stairwell scene. <laughs> Those are some bad stairs. <laughs> you do not want to mess around with those stairs. You see those stairs, you turn around and run. <laughs> yeah. Do not go up those stairs. Um, do not go near those stairs. Um, yeah. I am always thinking about the stairs in the Laura Palmer household. Honest to God, I, I don't think it was a cognizant like connection in my mind. But when I first said to you, movies are just about guys going up and down stairs. I think probably the Laura Palmer, Laura Palmer household was in my mind. Household and Palmer are two words that are difficult to say next to each other for me. I don't yeah. know why. It's the L's. Yeah. Anyway, M says, I really mm-hmm. love Spike Lee, despite him often being corny and some of his politics being a mess. I'd just like to hear, what Neve's takes on uh, Lee are generally, if you haven't gone over it yet, and also recommending people watch Get on the Bus, which rules. Um, it's been a long time since I, again, it's been a long time since I've watched a lot of Spike Lee. Um, I would agree with corny and politics MS, and it's also one of those things that, like, kind of situates in my mind with this, like, you know, 80s, 90s, early aughts independent filmmaking. Because so I kind of associate that with, like, like the 90s in general. There's just like a yeah. There's a Gen X like mode of approaching things that I just find so yeah. I don't think Spike Lee is this in the way that a lot of other stuff is, but like that at the time 
it was just what things were. It was just like the stance that like my older brothers were taking. Um, and so it was this thing that I like didn't really question. And now I look <clears throat> back on it and um, in retrospect, I just find it so like despicable and morally bankrupt. This mm. like, man, the system sucks, but what can you do but join it? Yeah. It's kind of the end. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I don't think Spike Lee gets that bad. Yeah. But there's a certain weird in the like disaffected, uh, ironic, I don't care about anything. There's like a corniness that I don't think people recognize at the time. And now whenever I watch it, I'm like, this is so corny and how much they like don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all just like fake man. Yeah. And like everything sucks. So I might as well get a job in a big corporation, just making a ton of money. It's like, okay. Yeah. Um, this is just me like fully having ire towards some of my brothers <laughs> who are not going to be listening to this podcast and did become evil bankers and weird startup guys. I, um, for my part, um, like I, I saw Malcolm X pretty young. Um, I think I've mentioned in the past, like, um, I started really getting into movies when I was 12 or 13 my inglorious bastards come out and my dad was on a tarantino kick you know basically my dad yeah. ends up showing me ends up showing me inglorious bastards but like maybe a couple months after it was out um my dad shows me pulp fiction and reservoir dogs those are movies that like just changed my fucking life like i'm into movies because of pulp fiction um malcolm x is another one that i remember my dad and stepmom showing me around that same time of like oh you're you know you're 13 now you know you're old enough that we're gonna like introduce you to like culture capital c you gotta see malcolm x malcolm x is like a huge like north star in my mind i don't i don't think i've seen it since i was 13 but like so much stuff like oriented itself around malcolm x in my mind probably more around like my politics then <laughs> uh my taste in cinema um like i also i i watched it and then i read and reread the autobiography of malcolm x um um i love that movie didn't catch do the right thing until a couple years later um do the right thing do the right thing is a sort of huge north star in my like taste in cinema i think do the right thing is like one of the greatest films ever made. Um, yeah. You know. That was the first Spike Lee movie that I watched. Yeah. And it's the one that I think about the most. Yeah. I I, I will say, um, Get on the Bus, I did see. I remember liking, but I don't remember very much of. And I would love to revisit. Um, beyond those two, which are like huge, like important movies for me, I have seen Chirac. Um, it's got stuff that I enjoyed. Um, it's, it's a mess. Yeah. You, you, you want to talk about fraught sexual politics and, <laughs> um, um, Chirac is a mess, but I, I enjoyed it probably more than most people did. Um, um, and there's one other that I, I've seen, but I cannot recall it now. It's definitely not. Um, 
I haven't seen any of anything he did in the nineties. Well, 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 no, because I've seen Malcolm X. I mean that like there's a couple like School Days, Mo Better Blues, Jungle Fever, Crooklyn, like those I think of as like Spike Lee movies that are like yeah. have some cultural cachet that I have not seen. Um, so I know I've seen from She's Got to Have It through. Malcolm X. I don't know if I've. I think I've seen Crooklyn. Mm-hmm. Girl Six. I don't think I've seen. I think that's the first, but I have seen it on the bus. Uh, you I know, think it's like right around here. I know I've seen He Got Game. Haven't seen that. Uh, it was a really long time ago, and I did, was that one the one that we joked about where I was. Anyway, um, the uh, the other one. The old boy remake hit while I was working in a movie theater, so I saw the old boy remake because it was just like, well, I can see this for free, and I might as well go see this. I don't remember a goddamn thing about it. I'm sure it wasn't good, but I totally fallen out of my brain. Yeah. Um, might have seen Red Hook Summer because that was around the same time that Old Boy came out, so I wouldn't have seen that in theaters, but I would have maybe been like, oh, this sounds like a better movie. I might have seen Red Hook Summer. I think the only Spike Lee movie that I have seen past the 90s, I don't remember if I've seen Bamboozled or not, but I saw Inside Man. I think that was the last Spike Lee movie I saw. I want to watch Inside Man. It seems like a fun movie. Yeah. Um, I remember, I think I almost went to see Chirac. Mm-hmm. I always kind of hated just like Chirac as a, yeah, I I like figured that the movie would be doing a little bit more with it than like yeah. the way that Chirac is used as a term. But I always it, it me is a, living in Chicago yeah. at the time that it, it is came a out. fraught term. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, it yeah. it yeah. Um, I really want to see the Five Bloods. I really want to see that. Um, man, Chadwick Boseman. Um. But yeah, that's that's my Spike Spike Lee watching. M also goes on to ask, you know, this episode comes out February first, so please do the thing all film critics do, at least one February, and recommend some favorite black films. Yes, it's cringe. We've all done it. Um, yeah, I mean we're doing black films for February, which is also yes. a little cringe. But yes, but also we had not done black films, so like. We are going to be cringe and like do the thing that we should have done three months ago. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we started the podcast and we're just picking movies, and then we were like, we should be more thoughtful about yeah. the movies that we're picking. Yeah. Um. Um. I I feel like I have talked about um a f- a fair number of the ones that have hit for me. I mentioned I mentioned earlier on in the heat of the night and Raisin in the Sun. I think those are two phenomenal films yeah um like sydney poitier in the 60s is like good yeah um um i am also pretty fond of um a couple paul robeson films um like um emperor jones i'm just very fond of um uh, uh what else um a few that i thought so one i mentioned earlier Killer of Sheep. That's a really good movie. Mm. Um, one that I've thought about us doing for the podcast is Soleil O. Or I don't know how to do the French O with the like carrot over it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I want to watch more Medhondo because it's the only Medhondo film I've seen. 
but it was good. I enjoyed it. I um, you go. Sorry. And then I was trying to think of some. So sweet, sweet back. Uh, I remember really enjoying. It's been a while. I still really love "Come On Feet" as just a song. I just listen to it sometimes. It's a great song. Um, and yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do that. And I was also thinking, uh, is there like another black exploitation film that really stands out to me? And it's Blackula. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then um, "Attack the Block" is really good. "Attack the Block" is fucking great. Yeah. Attack the block rules. Um, and I was trying to think of like what's just like a a great black comedy that cause the one that I landed on was I've talked about David Sly before. Um, two of his favorite films were Sister Act and Sister Act Two. <laughs> um, and there was a moment where you were talking about the director um, for Deep Cover, and you said Bill Duke, and I was writing in, and I was like. I feel like I was looking at movies because I got this email from M, you know, I was mm. just like looking them up and I saw that name and I double checked. I went to Bill Duke and to see which one he directed Sister Act 2. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you just want like a fun comedy, I like both of those movies. I have just like fondness for them. Both as just like, I think they're funny movies. And then also David Sly loved them a lot. So I have like sentimentality around them. I um am just gonna like fully like reveal to people like when I was a teenager like the stuff that was like hitting for me um get out I was no longer a teenager teenager I don't think but get out it's kind of corny to be like oh man get out's really good because (laughs) one everybody knows and two there's that one line but like get out phenomenal movie like very important um I think to me um uh Creed uh, and Fruitvale Station, I really, really like Ryan, Ryan Coogler, Brian Coogler. Anyway, um, I think it's Ryan Coogler. I really like Ryan Coogler movies and I hope that he can get out of the Marvel machine at some point. Yeah. Um, um, Selma really hit for me when it was new. There's probably some politics that now as a communist, I would be like, in a way that I'm not like that at all to the politics of Malcolm X, a movie from 1992, <laughs> you yeah. know? Um, that's all stuff from when I was, like, a little younger. Not too much younger, but there was one other thing I thought about, and I can't find it now. That's fine. This is a bummer one. I've talked about it on the podcast before, but, and it's also one that, one I think is just a, a good and important documentary. Also, I was involved in a, not the, like, main preservation of it, but in a preservation of it. Um, which is, uh, the murder of Fred Hampton. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's like a bummer movie to watch. Yeah. If people want, not that it's not important. It's just, if people want not, if people want something adjacent to that, but not a bummer, um, you should really go watch, um, the Anya Varda um, Black Panthers documentary. It's like sort of a bummer when you sort of abstract out and think about like, None of this went anywhere. Yeah. Um, but it is a really good movie for, um, like, it is a very good movie for, like, seeing, like, what protest, and, and this is a very corny word, but, like, what resistance looked like, you know, yeah. and to watch people push back. 
Like it is like a really moving thing to just sort of see that, you know, literally documented, you know, in a, Oh, a very recent one mm-hmm. um, that I enjoyed a lot that, that I saw was Sorry to Bother You. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> I love how weird it gets at the end. I have I not... A person who's like... I have not seen Sorry to Bother You. I have a funny story about it, though. Yeah. Um, I have been a fan of Bootsy Collins since he was making music. Yeah. Um... You know, I um, I just have always really liked uh, his music. I can't think of what his, not band name, whatever. He, like, did music under a different name that's, like, kind of a band. I cannot recall it right now. But anyway, he has an album from much earlier than the film called Sorry, Sorry to Bother You. And I tweeted as a joke one time. I'm like, I've been listening to that album since it was new, so I... Bootsy Collins should give me free tickets. And Bootsy Collins is a name-searching weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) And so searched, sorry to bother you, or searched Bootsy Collins and was like, hey, jackass, pay for my movie. (laughs) And quote tweeted me. (laughs) That's my funny sorry to bother you story. I want to watch that movie at some point. It's a good movie. Yeah, it seems like it. <laughs> I just um, was very taken aback by him being yeah. such an ass. You should pay for his movie, though. I should pay. <laughs> <laughs> um, do we want to move on to the next one, or do you have any more that you want to? No, no, we can move okay. on. Oh, Daughters of the Dust. Fucking watch that movie. It's great. Yeah, I was just I wanting know. to see if I could find um, some more older stuff because I do think it is really interesting to dig into, like. Cat breaking in. Uh, um, I think the like, I think if people like, if if someone's being cognizant is like, oh, I watch a lot of white movies. I should try to like start to watch more like movies about and by and featuring black people. You will like the stuff you will get recommended is probably from the last. 30 years from like the 90s onward yeah um, i mean some of that is like daughters of the dust is the first feature-length film shown in main theaters by a female black director yeah it was made in 1991 yes um i i and yeah like that that there's a reason for that um i do enjoy like going back and like seeing like older films um, like Sidney Poitier and Paul Robeson, Harry Belafonte movies, um, that sort of deal with this. And like the, it's always interesting to see like ways that they like sort of are pushing back against what was permissible and, and sort of are subject to what was permissible. And yeah. like seeing that like black cinema is a, is a, has been around a lot longer than just the last 30 years, yeah. you know? Um, but that often is also like we'll watch Sweet Sweetback. Yeah. But like a lot of it is like having to like get at it through different means, which is like maybe there's like a major black actor, but it's still a white director. Or right. Right. Maybe like it's doing this like black exploitation thing that's like kind of mm-hmm. using the community as like a, a you know, 
sort of exploitation-y thing. Well, yeah. But then also, like, develops significant importance within the communities that it's that weirdly was... representing. Like, this is, like, why I like Blackula, because it's, it's a stupid movie, but also, like, it's, like, fun that this is a thing that exists. Yeah. Um, um, the, the, something I meant to say earlier and, and kind of got no, fun. I'm, <laughs> I'm getting tired and jumping to fun yeah. as a word. We're, we're, it's 1am. Um. This episode is so long. It's fine. Um, something I forgot to mention about, um, deep cover is that I think some, some of the way that they're able to get away with all the, like, very overtly, like, political stuff is that the other, like, a huge, probably, like, selling point of that movie is the way that it is very, like, sensational and tantalizing about the sort of, like, you know, crack, ade- crack epidemic. Yeah. And, like, you know, um, sometimes presenting, like, black life as this sort of exotic thing to be looked on for a white audience. In the same way, I thought about Silence of the Lambs a little bit of, like, oh we're looking at a woman being harassed in the workplace in in the same way that I think we're looking in on like black life, but we're not participating in black life in deep, deep cover sometimes. Yeah. Um, But I think because of that, it is able to, you know, be this sort of like politically interesting thing. Yeah. Anyway. Um, Final question from uh, Marin. Yeah. Um, you read this. I'm tired. <laughs> yeah. You're also tired, but I said it first. So, Marin says, uh, Kagemushu is my first Kurosawa, so it's funny because it was my last Kurosawa, um, <laughs> which was one hell of an introduction. I mostly just remember vivid images and many, many guys. There many are many, guys. many guys. Many guys. Um, are there any other movies, not by Kurosawa, that are so much about the movement of vast amounts of guys? Um, you should watch the... Films by Ishiro Honda, who uh, directed the original Godzilla movie and a bunch of other Godzilla movies, um, and importantly, was like studying under Akira Kurosawa. Yeah. <laughs> so there's um, certain stuff that he does in the like movement of crowds that evokes Kurosawa, I think. It's been a long time since I've seen uh, Prince of Arabia, but... Yeah, I, I think generally if you go with, you know, these sort of like... This is a, like, type of movie that died, like, epics still exist, but, like, they're not made the same way that they used to be, where, like, like, the David Lean epics of the 60s just have vanished from the earth, but, like, David Lean movies are extremely this, you know? Yeah. Um. Um, Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia. I was like, it's not Prince of Arabia. But I couldn't remember what. I also couldn't Again, remember. Again, I'm getting tired. Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, um, even his, like... I think Ben-Hur is this. It's been a ben long time Hur, since I've seen Ben-Hur. The The Ten Commandments. I haven't ever seen Ben-Hur, but I know a little bit about that movie. Yeah. That, if that you, is just If a... you look up a lot of those, like, epics, and especially war epics from before, like, Lord of the Rings especially. Yeah. Because those movies die in, like... Whenever Cleopatra in like 1965 like bankrupts United Artists or whoever, like yeah. Cleopatra bombs and those types of movies died, and then by the time they were starting to come back, special effects were such that you just didn't need to 
to do this in the same way anymore. Yeah. You know. Um then uh also another unrelated question. Uh what are your favorite film adaptations of stage plays? Uh, this is a fun toss to a thing we're gonna do. Yeah. Before we do before we do that, I will just say that um I for a year or two was really interested in like um American like social realist dramas from like the from like the forties, fifties, and somewhat in the into the sixties. Hi, cat. You're knocking our microphone around. Um, so a lot of those like social realist stuff. I'm I really don't care for Arthur Miller. I think he's a hack. Um, but the the plays of Tennessee Williams have gotten adapted pretty well sometimes. Um, Streetcar Named Desire in particular um, is one of my favorite movies. I love Streetcar. Um, um, uh, Raisin in the Sun, I mentioned earlier, um, any Sidney Lumet, like, play adaptation, particularly yeah. Long Day's Journey into Night, um, the, that's, that's just the shit that hits for me. Um, just look up movies of Eugene O'Neill plays, and that's shit that I like a lot, um, or at least used to like. It's not really my taste anymore, but it was important to me at a time so yeah um the the fun throw is i don't know if we're gonna post all the way ahead because we have a bunch of gaps to fill in between but um so in july we're gonna do our first shakespeare month we're gonna do some hamlet adaptations we haven't decided the ones yet Mm -hmm. but we're gonna do four hamlet adaptations uh this is an idea that we landed on it kind of just like generated as a us talking on locked Twitter. Mm. Um, and I like the idea of we're going to like, this will be a recurring thing that we'll do on stairwells mm. and we'll do different plays. We'll probably come back to at least Hamlet. Cause there's a lot of Hamlet movies. I there's a lot of Hamlet movies. Um, there's a lot of Shakespeare movies in general, but like Hamlet is a really good play. And there's a lot of Hamlet movies that I like. Yeah. Um, but so that's also why we're starting with Hamlet is because, there's just we both like i know that the bad sleep well is going to be on there yeah yeah um so yeah that'll be a fun thing in july um and then we got a a little bit that's going to happen just to like wrap things up um probably going to have a week off at the end of august and 23rd of august Mm. um pandemic willing we're going to go to uh my emily's brother's wedding mm-hmm. um and then we're gonna start twin peaks <laughs> um let me actually do the click over because i think we're gonna do the all of lynch yeah uh so it's gonna be like the 30th of august we're doing eraser head and we're just going through lynch yeah we're so, gonna go through twin peaks episode by episode we're gonna do blue velvet we're gonna do i did mix in a laura here yeah we're but... gonna be doing david lynch so, yeah. uh, like fucking everything, Lost Highway, Inland Empire, Inland yeah. Empire, a movie I've been intending to see for literal years now. So it'll be good. Um, to... There's some stuff that we're we're still figuring it, figuring out. Like we're probably going to do the missing pieces of Twin Peaks and in the international pilot as an episode at some uh-huh. point. Um, we might do <sighs> on the air and hotel room to sort of failed TV shows after Twin Peaks, but. Chances are I'm just going to, like, watch them and talk about them. Yeah. 
Um, we are still going to talk about other movies we watched when like each episode, but um, yeah, it'll it'll take us into like God, basically time for the next July to maybe be our next Shakespeare month. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's quite the undertaking. I it's kind of daunting and scary whenever I think about it. But I'm saying into a mic now, which means we're committing to it to some degree. Yeah, we can always hit the that thing, rip cord if we need to. The the thing is, the thing is that every time I look at the spreadsheet, I'm like, man, I don't want to do every David Lynch movie. That's gonna take up so much time. But every time I listen to Totally Reprise or I see a screenshot of Twin Peaks, I'm like, man, I want to go through every David Lynch movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. <coughs> Well, the other thing is, like, maybe we'll still just pare it down to just Twin Peaks. Mm. But I kind of feel like it's in the spirit of, like, ornate stairwells to do movies as well. I want to watch think... Lost Highway, and I'm never going to do it if we don't do it yeah. for a podcast. Um, and I kind of think, like, part of what... The main things that are going to be different about us is, like, if you've never watched Twin Peaks, right now, just start watching and go around along with Totally Reprise. Yeah. Yeah. We are um, not, I don't intend for our podcast to be a, I have not seen Twin Peaks thing. When, like, I'm not spoiling things now. When we get to Twin Peaks episode one, I am going to say the ending of Twin Peaks, at least through season two. I'm going to talk about Firewalk with me when we talk about the pilot. So just like, yeah, that's where we're at with that. Yeah. For it to be a podcast that we're going to enjoy doing and like be the podcast that we want to do, we just have to be able to talk about what Twin Peaks is uh-huh. from the beginning. Yeah. Um, I don't want to do any of this Twin Peaks rewatch, you know, Idle Thumbs podcast where they have to pretend that they don't, they're not mm. saying any spoilers. And then after they, you know, credit the music, go down. Yeah, then they do the, all the spoiler talk. None of that. I just want to. Right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So. God, this is going to be a long episode. Yeah. Where can people find you? People can find me on Twitter at autumnal underscore coffee. You can find all the podcasts I do at exportodd.io. Normally, I go through a whole spiel plugging things, but if you've been listening to this for three and a half hours, you know, so I'm not doing it. Where can people find you? People can find me in bed in a couple minutes because I'm going to bed. I'm just going to kick you out of my house and go to sleep. Yeah. Also, you can find me at FoxMomNia on Twitter and also go to Media Pile, Media underscore Pile, mm-hmm. spelled with the M-H. Mm-hmm. Just looking the cover. Okakora is real. <laughs> you got to say it. We shouldn't have announced that, not because I didn't want to announce it, but because I'm like, so far off. We don't need to worry about that. <laughs> yeah, we just alluded to it. Yeah. That's anyway, Okafora is real. Okafora is real. Thank you for saying it. I'm going to bed.
black capes back on the rack. Bella Lugos is dead, the bats have left the bell tower, the victims have been bled, red velvet lines, the black box. Bella Lugos is dead.
Rashomon, Yojimbo Ron, Killer Sheep by Charles Burnett. Great black independent film. This is a film I saw in NYU film school when I was a student. Night of the Hunter, starring Robert Mitchum, Shelley Winters, directed by Charles Lawton. That's when we got the whole love hate thing. When you saw Do the Right Thing and Ray Rahim do Love Hate, that came from. Night of the Hunter, written by James Ag. Uh, from David Lean, Laws of Arabia. So I don't want to name them all, but please see how many of these films you see. <laughs> 